Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real Talk, Black Talk. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com New Jersey Governor Chris Christie has drawn fire for equating the Black Lives Matter movement with cop killers. But as Matt Katz of New Jersey Public Radio reports, that rhetoric is part of an increasing hostility toward police brutality activists from conservatives. For months now, conservative media have sounded the alarm about Black Lives Matter. The protest movement seeks to end racial profiling and the excessive use of police force. On Fox News, Black Lives Matter is often called an anti-police movement or a murder movement that is endorsed by President Obama. This is a radical group that calls for violence against police officers. We have proven that. This is like a criminal organization. I think it's time to arrest these leaders because they're threatening people. And they're causing violence. Their agenda is it's okay to go ahead and kill cops. To support their allegations, Fox commenters often cite a protest over the summer in Minneapolis, where Black Lives Matter supporters chanted for police pigs to fry like bacon. And they cite this chant from New York City in 2014. Reporters later found the dead cops clip actually came from a different group during a different protest. But as conservative media took up the anti-Black Lives Matter cause, Republican presidential candidates have since followed suit. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky has criticized the movement by saying all lives matter. Earlier this month, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas went further. If you look at the Black Lives Matter movements, one of the most disturbing things is, is more than one of their protests have embraced rabid rhetoric, rabid anti-police language, literally suggesting and embracing and celebrating the murdering of police officers. 
And now, in an interview on CBS's Face the Nation with John Dickerson, Christie has gone even further still. I don't believe that that movement should be justified when they're calling for the murder of police officers, no. But they're not calling for the murder of police sure they officers. Are. Sure they are. They've been chanting in the streets for the murder of police officers. Well, individuals have, but the Black Lives Matter well, is about... Listen, you know, John, that's what the movement is creating. Unlike other GOP candidates, Christie has rarely ventured into racial controversy. In fact, he won 21% of the black vote in New Jersey in 2013, a number that is unheard of for a modern-era Republican. The way he did that was by focusing a lot of attention on the mostly black and Latino city of Camden, and by courting African-American endorsements. One of those came from Bishop Reginald Jackson, leader of a prominent Essex County church. Jackson said he's been hearing from congregants since Sunday— who pointedly remind him of his endorsement in 2013. Now, the minister says he's disappointed and disturbed by Christie's comments. My immediate perception was that uh, the governor was trying to play to the base or to the far right of the Republican Party. He wishes he heard the governor criticize protest slogans on the right, like, we want our country back, and how that might be used to commit racial violence. Jackson no longer speaks to the governor very much and has concerns about him becoming president. It's really just during this campaign that I've seen this side of the governor. The ACLU and NAACP in New Jersey also condemned Christie's remarks. The Black Lives Matter movement says it doesn't support violence of any kind. When questioned, Christie's spokeswoman pointed to a statement in the same Face the Nation interview when the governor says bad cops need to be prosecuted. But his overall message about Black Lives Matter is already resonating in New Hampshire, the presidential primary state that Christie is focusing on. Merrimack County Sheriff Scott Hilliard saw the dead cops protest chant on Fox News, and he agrees with Christie that the Black Lives Matter movement is a threat to law enforcement. He said cops are more at risk today than they have been in decades. It's a leadership role that all of our presidential candidates should be standing up and saying, Governor Christie is the first one and has the courage to do it. Hilliard, who has formally endorsed the governor, said he's going to be telling his friends who are so far undecided in the election that Christie is the only one standing up for them. For WNYC, I'm Matt Katz. Little brother, I heard y'all ain't hitting in New York. Word. I heard y'all ain't hitting at L.A. Word, word. I heard y'all ain't hitting in North Carolina. Word. Uh, uh, There are deep racial disparities in the way police conduct traffic stops in Greensboro. That's according to a New York Times analysis that got front-page exposure over the weekend. The data show Greensboro police are more than twice as likely to search vehicles if the driver is African-American than if the driver is white. There are also significant racial differences in the way officers use force or charge drivers with low-level offenses. Now, the trend is not unique to Greensboro, but it does raise questions about whether Greensboro is using best police practices and whether an implicit racial bias exists within the department. New York Times reporter Andrew Lahren helped write the piece. It's called Disproportionate Risks of Driving While Black, and he joins us now on The State of Things. Welcome, Andrew. Good afternoon, Frank. There's evidence, of course, of racial profiling in police departments all across the country. What drew you to Greensboro? We were looking at uh, at disparities in um, in in how traffic stops are conducted, and uh, 
you know, one of the interesting things about Greensboro is that uh, is that it's it's more representative rather than than an unusual place. Um, it's representative in in many ways. One of the first things that you know that you just mentioned has to do with how traffic stops are even conducted and what happens once a vehicle is pulled over. Um, and we looked at particularly at, at what are known as consent searches. And that's when uh, once the vehicle is pulled over, does the officer ask the driver or someone in the vehicle if they could do a search? Almost all the time, all the literature says the driver says yes. Uh, the driver agrees to a consent search. But it's the time in policing when, when the officers have perhaps the most discretion, 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 discretion that they can exhibit in the course of a traffic stop. So we were really curious about what happened then. And what did happen? Well, what happened is that, uh, at least according to the, the data collected in North Carolina, and, we, and again, we saw these patterns elsewhere, has to do with how well they actually find the guns and drugs and other contraband they suspect might be in the vehicle. So, so police officers, um, you know, uh, two or three out of every hundred stops are asking drivers, you know, may I look in your vehicle? And they're doing it because they, they have a hunch that something is there. They don't have a search warrant like they might have in other stops. They don't have probable cause like they might have in other stops. This is more of a hunch. And then the question is, well, how well do they score? What's their batting average? Do they, do they actually find the guns and drugs? So they're seeking consent searches more often with blacks. And you would expect, well, maybe it has to do with crime. You know, maybe the, if, if, if all things are equal, then they'll, they'll have about the same hit rate finding guns and drugs. But that's not what we found. What we found is that when it comes to finding guns and drugs, police officers might be more selective when they're doing it with whites. They do it at a lower rate, seeking consent searches. But they're far more successful finding guns and drugs on those white searches. When they're searching blacks, they're not scoring at the same levels. It's not even close. And that's what we thought was really interesting, is that they're searching blacks more with consent searches, but they're not finding the guns and drugs. They're finding more on white, uh, white drivers. They're more Correct. successful at finding contraband on white drivers, though they are searching them less. Right. And you'd also think, you know, just in terms of policing, you know, if you, uh, you know, s setting aside the, the racial issue, you know, another another concern is also how effectively you're policing. You know, you only have so many police officers to, uh, you know, man hours a day to, to, to police your city and try to keep it safe. And, you know, one of the concerns that experts raise is that if you're spending time doing consent searches that are not finding things then what are the opportunities that you're missing out on? How might you reallocate those police sources to better ensure safety in a community? Yeah, and what? so, so let's t uh, step back a little bit, because, again, you'd find that if you're finding contraband on white people more than black people, if you're going to profile at all, it would go the other way, you would think, once you looked at the data. But let's take a look at the stops in general. Uh, who's getting stopped more uh, as a percentage basis or uh, in overall numbers? Right. So, so whether you look at it based on, you know, local driving age populations, you know, or, or other figures, you know, uh, it appears that, um, you know, that blacks and uh, are getting stopped more often than whites. You know, w one other interesting thing that we found was that you'd think that if you're pulling over a motorist, um, 
and you have a reason to pull them over, you'd at least give them a ticket, a citation, a warning. Um, perhaps there's an arrest. Um, perhaps contraband is found. You know, all these things might occur in a stop. One of the things we also examined was how often nothing happens. How often does does a police officer pull over a motorist and and then decide that there's nothing that they can cite them on? And uh, we were finding there as well, you know, blacks were being pulled over, uh, you know, at a, at a higher rate where the officers were not, in the end, citing them for anything. How does North Carolina, and I know that data collection is one of the reasons uh, that the Times was able to do, even do this report. Uh, we do better data collection in, uh, in, in North Carolina than some other states. Can you give us a comparison in terms of the way we collect data in this state? Um, North Carolina, you know, should be should perhaps be applauded for for the level of of public records that it keeps and and the availability that it makes this data, you know, so that people who have concerns about policing can go can go and examine themselves, you know, local media citizens, they can they can all get this data. Some of the ways that um, that uh, that North Carolina um, exceeds other states is first off, it goes back pretty far. It goes back to the, the beginning of this of this century, um, about 2002. Um, the other thing, too, is that, you know, you, you get to see every single traffic stop that's that's documented. Um, and uh, and you do get to see literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of traffic stops over time. Um, and you get to see how things play out, not just whether a citation is issued, but you also get to see whether police used force during the course of that stop, whether police encountered force, you know, whether tickets were uh, were issued or whether arrests were made. What You get a sense as well, not in perfect detail, but you get a sense as well about what contraband is picked up. Well, we talked to this, so this gives uh, every locality and every police agency the opportunity to, as you suggest, examine itself and find out if you've got a really great police department but these disturbing trends, hey, what can we do about this? Well, we spoke to Greensboro Mayor Nancy Vaughn about the statistics, and uh, they do suggest widespread, at least implicit, bias, and here's what she had to say. I think we have a good police department, and I think it is comprised of really good men and women. Um, but it's it's made up of individuals, and you can't you, you know what you can't know what goes through every individual's mind on any given day. I would not say that we have a per- pervasive problem. No, I would not. That's Greensboro Mayor Nancy Vaughn. She's responding to a New York Times article that points out racial disparities in Greensboro traffic stops. Greensboro News and Record reports today that the article is one of the top issues at a candidate forum for mayor in the city council. So whether the mayor thinks she's got a problem or not, apparently people who attended this forum think they they do. Um, Andrew, you talk about um, implicit bias here. This is one of the difficult things, and you talk about it in the article. It's a real difficult thing to prove or even in any way demonstrate. Absolutely. I mean, that's why we're, we're, we try to be very careful to saying, look, you know, we're talking about something disproportionate is happening in the way blacks are being policed versus whites. Um, I, I, I don't think any of us would lightly try to venture into what's in the hearts and minds of, of officers. But very clearly, not just in Greensboro, across, but across America, you see concerns being raised about the tensions and damage and distrust that then happens between 
African-American communities and, and the police department, without a doubt, there's, you know, you know, in places like Greensboro, you know, high crime areas, you know, dovetail with, with where there is a predominantly African-American population. And no doubt there are community leaders there asking for police to deal with the crime issues and with crime issues in those communities. And so, of course, you would imagine it would be reasonable to want a good relations between the community and police. And traffic stops become a point where it seems that distrust can, can just breed. Well, and you found... It's a very hard thing to measure, but it's something we hear community leaders and, and others in the community talking about. Right. And I think you talked to, to one officer who said, you know, the traffic code is uh, the police officer's best friend. Right. That, that person is a former prosecutor as well, so he's been on the other end of that equation. And what does that mean? What do, what do they mean by that? Sure. So I think, you know, anyone who's ever gotten behind the wheel knows that uh, driving is, uh, is, you know, it's hard to do everything by the book. Um, perhaps you're fiddling with a station dial um, to hear us this afternoon, and you go a little bit towards the median uh, uh, painted line. Uh, maybe you, um, uh, you know, don't quite come to a full stop at a stop sign. Uh, maybe a passenger in your vehicle didn't click their seatbelt right before you, you know, before you started driving, but as you started driving. You know, all those things are infractions. Um, the the prosecutor, the former prosecutor, you were uh, mentioning, quoted in our story, is saying essentially, look. The traffic code is very long and extensive, and um, if you want to find a reason for for pulling over somebody, all you need to do is follow them for a few blocks or a few miles, and you'll probably come up with, with a reason for pulling that person over. All right. Andrew, I've only got about 30 seconds left. Can you give us a brief comparison between uh, Greensboro and Fayetteville? I know that you did that comparison as well. Well, that's the really interesting thing is that in Fayetteville, the police chief there is taking an opposite tact. He's deciding, look, you know, the place where we have so much discretion, like consent searches, you know, perhaps we don't need to be doing these kinds of stops and perhaps we can can build better ties with the community. He's doing that and there's still, you know, now their hit rates when it comes to finding guns and drugs is equal between blacks and whites. So you see you see the way that he views policing differently. Yeah. First thing you have to do is take it seriously. Andrew Laren, reporter for the New York Times, co authored the article The Disproportionate Risks of Driving While Black. Andy, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. I've seen what's around the corner. I've seen what's over the horizon and I promise you. You niggas have nothing to celebrate. I know I won't get there with you. I'm going to Canada. I came to Canada to claim asylum under Refugee Act because the United States of America is corrupt. They're consistently killing black people. It's documented. Uh, the United Nations has condemned America for their racial disparities, for their uh, police, police brutality. And honestly, I kept on getting harassed by cops for no reason, false charges, uh, false arrests. I'm not just the only one going through it. All black people in America are going through the same thing. It's corruption on the behalf of the United States. Imagine going to a sit-down restaurant and being ordered to prepay for the meal you want to eat. A Vancouver man says it happened to him and only him inside an Elmer's restaurant full of other customers. K2's Jackie Lebrecht joins us live tonight with a story. And Jackie, he's suing over this. Yes, 
he's black and he was the only person in that restaurant who was asked to prepay. Everyone else was white. So this is the suit he's filed and it's for discrimination. He's a Vancouver realtor and a Multnomah County Sheriff's deputy. And he used to dine at this Elmer's along Northeast 40th Street in Vancouver. The brazenness of it is what's striking. Brian Eason is suing the restaurant and its owner, claiming they forced him to prepay for a meal last December. It takes a lot of courage for somebody who has something of a public profile uh, to become a litigant. Uh, and, and it took him a long time to take the step. The complaint states the waitress explained that she was acting on instructions from the owner. The waitress apologized, acknowledging that the policy was racist, but continuing to demand prepayment. Eason's attorney, Greg Cafori, says after no response from the company, his client decided to sue for discrimination. He wants $100,000 in damages. Your race you carry with you, and when that becomes a source of, of trauma, a source of humiliation, a source of embarrassment. Um, it's, it's a unique feeling. Franchise owner Sandra Lewis, who's named in the suit, deferred us to Elmer's corporate office. A company spokesperson writes to K2, there is no Elmer's policy requiring any guest to prepay for their meal. We have taken steps to ensure that the franchisee has ended this practice. Well, they're awesome. They all you know, greet me with whatever I need. Customers say it's hard to believe. You know, I'm Russian, so you know, they can say, well, you have to prepay because you're Russian. It doesn't matter what color you are. It's the kind of case that makes you glad you went to law school. To get a chance to stand up for what's right and, and present to a, to a jury a great injustice mm -hmm. is um, what a lot of us live for. And Kafori says they will not settle. This case will see its day in court. Reporting live in Vancouver, Jackie Lebrack, K2 News. We'll be hearing more about that one, Jackie. Thank you. Since you're a big Canada fan. Samantha Grant was just out shopping. She was looking for a winter coat, as many of us are doing at this time of year. But says she says she was floored during that shopping experience, floored by a racist remark she believed she heard from an employee. She was shopping at a popular store called Aritzia. It's a national chain you may have seen. It caters to 15 to 30-year-olds. We've got Samantha Grant on the line with us this morning to talk about her experience and talk about what she hopes will come out of it. Good morning to you, Samantha. Good morning, Neil. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Take us back to the store and tell me what happened. Sure. Um, so last week, Thursday, I was in Aritzia on Queen West shopping for a coat. They didn't have my size on the rack, so I asked a salesperson if she could help me find one. Uh, while she was looking, I overheard her speaking to another employee that she didn't know why she was helping me. I probably wouldn't be able to afford the coat because I was black. Um, I was shocked by the remark. So I immediately left the store without even acknowledging the situation, mostly because I knew I would become emotional if I did. Mm -hmm. um, when I got home that evening, I immediately drafted a letter to the company explaining the situation, how it made me feel. Um, but I got radio silence for several days. And we're going to talk about what the company's said since in just a moment. But take just take us back to that moment. I think uh, even if you haven't experienced a specific thing that you did, sometimes in that moment, it's just sort of that the heat washes over you and you chose, you, you decided to leave. Did you question what you heard as well? Because sometimes we think, did I, did I really just hear that? Did that really happen? I didn't. I, I think it was pretty clear what mm -hmm. she said. Um, and it shocked me that it happened even within earshot of me, at, even at all. 
But, you know, I've been very fortunate in my life to not have really experienced the type of racism that happened that day. So it it really stung. Um, I kind of got a rush of emotions that I never felt before and kind of knew I had to leave and be more rational about this. Mm -hmm. Did you ever think, you know, that, that answering it or dealing with it in that moment would have helped too? Probably, definitely. Um, I just, I think that, I, I think I was just overcome by emotions at the time. And now looking back, I think that I might have made the right decision mm-hmm. because it sounds like some actions might be taken. Yeah, when it, we've got a, we've, I've seen the tweet from uh, Aritzia since. We've got a longer uh, response from them. I'm just going to read uh, a little bit of it for everyone. You've seen it, of course. The company response says, we'd like to say upfront, we consider this experience unacceptable as we strive to deliver outstanding customer service without exception. And Samantha's experience is at odds with our culture and values. We apologize to Ms. Grant for what she experienced. And it goes on to say that Aritzia prides itself on hiring, training and retaining the most talented staff and that diversity, richness of cultures uh, is reflected in their store. I'm paraphrasing from the statement. They're saying they're also taking action. There's an investigation, one-on-one meetings at the Queen West store and a review of their policies, including the time it takes to reply to customer concerns. So what do you make of that response? So I actually didn't know the end of that Mm. response, so that's interesting. Um, Really, the issue that I mainly have with this is I, this incident happened last Thursday, so a week now. I sent them an immediate email, and it wasn't until I took to Twitter on Monday when, you know, several of my colleagues and friends and several journalists actually started tweeting Aritzia to say, are you going to respond to this, Um, that I even got a form letter response that really didn't tell me anything. It didn't really give me much hope that they were taking the matter seriously. Mm -hmm. The following day, someone from the customer service team did call me and apologize for the situation and wanted to send me the coat as an apology. But I sort of, you know, in conversation with him, it sort of fell short. And I wanted to know what they were going to do to rectify the situation to make sure that it didn't happen to anyone else. And they didn't really have an answer for me at that point. And several people actually reached out to me about their own negative experiences with staff who worked at a Ritzia store, from mm-hmm. body shaming to mocking to, you know, even more experiences with racism. So I kind of knew I had to use my story as a way to make sure that no one else has to feel that pain that I felt that day. And really, anyone who's ever contacted me has ever felt while shopping in their stores. And the other experiences that you've heard since you uh, went public with your story, was it specific to that Queen Street West store? Or was um, it other a lot locations? of them definitely from that store, but I would say that it's I've heard from people all across Canada about this. Do you think it's an issue about poor training? Do you think it's an actual issue of, of racism? Or do you think it's a combination? I really think that it's an issue of training. I you know I've given this a lot of thought. Mm-hmm. And I think that, again, because so many people reach out to me about their own experiences, mm-hmm. it really comes down to an issue of their employee culture. And I think that definitely some sensitivity training or workshops would be beneficial so that staff really knows how to appropriately interact with customers. And uh, yesterday evening, I was actually contacted by the vice president of retail for Aritzia. She reached out to me to let me know that on Friday, tomorrow, we could connect and kind of um, have a conversation about how they're going to move forward with this. So how do you feel now? Would you go back to that store? I, I don't think that I would specifically go back to that location, just because I don't want to be reminded of that again. But... 
you know, I really think that if I shop at Aritzia again, it really comes from what they're going to do here. Because now that they've been put in the spotlight, I really hope that some action is really taken. It's a store that caters to a lot of young people, and but young people deserve respect as well when they're shopping, Absolutely. right? No matter Absolutely. no matter your background. So, are you are you confident at this point, based on this the statement we, we received from Aritzia and what you've heard, that conversation you hope to have? Do you feel they're taking it seriously now? Yeah, I'm pretty optimistic. I mean, both conversations that I've had with members is, um, of the Aritzia team have been really positive. I just kind of hope to kind of keep the pressure on them and definitely want to hold them to account to make sure that, you know, they're going to move forward with this in an appropriate way. Samantha Grant, thanks for sharing your story with us. We're definitely going to keep checking in with you to see how things proceed. Great. Thank you so much. Sweden is a contradictory place. It takes in more migrants per capita than any other European country. At the same time, anti-immigrant violence is growing. When I visited Stockholm in January, arsonists were setting fire to mosques. The head of the Islamic Association of Sweden told me he had never been so afraid. Every time I wake up, I'm very afraid to check my telephone to see that something happened during the night. That's Omar Mustafa. Since that interview, tens of thousands of people have come to Sweden from Syria, Somalia, and other countries. The backlash is growing. Now there has been a string of arson attacks on asylum centers. And at a school last week, a man stabbed four people with a sword. Police say he chose his victims based on their skin color. We decided to check back in with Omar Mustafa of Sweden's Islamic Association. And it's good to talk to you again. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, you told me when we met at your office in January that things were worse than they had ever been before. How would you describe the situation now? You know, you have the both parts. You have the racist movement. They are actually stronger right now. It's more scary because they are very active. And you have the good forces now speaking up. They are organizing themselves. We've seen a lot of positive actions in Sweden, welcoming the refugees in taking actions against the racist movements. So it's a polarization in the Swedish society. A far-right party called the Sweden Democrats has grown tremendously in popularity in the last year. Polls show it's now the leading party in Sweden Do you think the country's identity as a country that welcomes strangers is changing? No, because the far right represent maybe maximum 20%. And what we see now is that the majority of the Swedes are actually more positive to refugees now. They understand that we need to help people in need. We have seen a lot of reports about Sweden actually needing those refugees. We have a older population right now, and we are in desperate need for new labor forces. We have a problem in Sweden, but the problem is not the refugees. The problem is the racist movement, and more people are uh, knowing that now. You say Sweden needs more people to augment the workforce, but there was a line in a recent Washington Post article that stood out to me, which said, a family that may have been given an apartment in trendy Stockholm, had they arrived a year ago, could today end up bussed to a remote village north of the Arctic Circle or housed in a converted prison cell. To me, that sounds like Sweden's capacity to take people in really has been stretched too far. The capacity is actually not a problem. We are still one of the richest countries in Europe. We should do better than countries like Lebanon, Turkey and Jordan. And I've seen the last weeks that the Swedes are welcoming refugees at their homes. And yet, 
Sweden's government has said it will put new limits in place on the number of migrants and refugees that Sweden takes in. That suggests that something is changing. Yeah, and uh, it was a very bad signal from the Swedish government with this new statement. I hope they will uh, change it because we have a smaller part of the society who is against more refugees. We have a further smaller part who is acting on hate crimes and we have seen a wave of terror against accommodations for asylum seekers and the last attack on the school. Uh, So, of course, we have a problem, but the problem for me is uh, the racist movement, not the refugees. That's Omar Mustafa, president of the Islamic Association of Sweden, speaking with us from his office in Stockholm. Very good to talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're the smartest man here. You got them all eating out of your hands. You can own this freaking hotel, except for one thing. You're black. You're not even a nigger. You're an African. Last week, student protests shut down every major public university in South Africa. The protests forced the government to cancel a planned tuition hike next year. It was one of the biggest student movements to emerge in South Africa since the fall of apartheid. And as students say, it's about much more than just tuition. Sarah Birnbaum spoke with one student protester in Cape Town. I meet Mapaseka Setlodi early in the morning at a coffee shop not far from the University of Cape Town campus. She looks frail and exhausted. It's really hard to sleep after you've been exposed to stun grenades and tear gas. It's, it's quite a traumatizing experience, so that's why I'm so tired. Mapaseka was in the group of students that rushed the gates of parliament last week. Police fired stun grenades, tear gas and rubber bullets into the crowd. You hear the first time grenade and it whizzes, feels like shh, and then it bangs, it goes twa, and then um, there's just color everywhere. I asked Mapaseka how she knew it was a stun grenade. Her answer? Because of her parents' friends. They took part in demonstrations against the apartheid government in 1976 when police fired on student protesters. Parents are sharing information about how to how to avoid tear gas. Imagine your own mother giving you advice like, okay, when that sound goes, just cover your mouth and nose. At 23, Mapaseka is part of the post-apartheid generation, the born freeze. She doesn't remember white minority rule, but she's no stranger to the poverty that still keeps back millions of black South Africans. You know, your parents tell you what it was like voting for the first time, and they were so happy because they were so convinced, you know, that things are going to get better for South Africa. And I feel like the promises that were made then, they're not being made. We're not seeing any of that from the ruling party. Promises like a better life for all South Africans, black and white, universal access to quality education, housing, and jobs. Where Mapa Seka is from, most young people are unemployed. Her parents scraped together enough money to send her to a good school in another part of the country when she was 10. I was very young and I felt like my parents don't love me. Why are you sending me so far to go to school? But I realized that they had my best interests at heart. Mapaseka worked her butt off and won a scholarship to the top-ranked University of Cape Town. But this year, her scholarship money dried up after classes began. Now she owes the university 35,000 rand or about $2,500, and they won't let her graduate. And I'm supposed to be graduating at the end of the year. I have this 35K debt, basically choking my future by the throat. 
Back in 2007, the South African government promised to provide free education for the poor. But that promise didn't materialize. The ANC government says it's facing massive budget deficits and can't afford it. Mapaseka rolls her eyes at that. Yo, <laughs> I find that very, very, very humorous. She does a quick Google search on her phone and starts reading me headlines like... President Zuma funnels millions of taxpayer dollars to pay for improvements to his private home. How can you say there's not enough money? Like, I am not buying that. Last week, under pressure from the protests, Zuma called off the plan to hike tuition fees for this year. It's a victory for the students, but it doesn't really help Mapaseka. She still owes the university money. When she shared that on Facebook, one of her friends got in touch. And he sent me an inbox and he's like, you study economics, right? I'm like, yeah, I'm studying economics. And then you ask me how much am I owing? And I'm like, 35K, brah. And he's like, yeah, okay. Um, please give me your number. An hour later, he texted her. And he's like, I have organized people to raise funds to help you pay off your fees because I believe in you and I believe in empowering people. And he shared his story with me. He was also facing the same situation. And somebody believed in him. They saw his potential, and they helped raise funds for him. Now Mapaseka and the other students are hoping the government will recognize their potential and come through on its promises to them. For The World, I'm Sarah Birnbaum, Cape Town, South Africa. Well, explain to me why you want a, a white dentist all of a sudden. Because I want the best available dentist for my tooth. That's why. Now, just by coincidence, the best dentist schools are of the white people, by the white people and for the white people. <laughs> now, don't it seem likely that the best dentist would be white? White dentist, please. Here's a surprising statistic. Last year, fewer African-American men applied to medical school than they did three decades ago. To find out why, Lauren Silverman from KERA in Dallas spoke with several black med school students about the path that got them there. After a long day with patients at the Veterans Hospital in Dallas, OVA Akpatare is unpacking groceries on his kitchen counter. Milk and beef jerky, cereal, this random cucumber that I bought because Jeff bought a cucumber too. Jeffrey Okanye um, is his friend and fellow fourth-year medical student at University of Texas Southwestern. They're in a class of 237 people. Okanye points out there are only five black men. I knew the ones above us, below us, because there aren't that many in either. Do you guys stick together as a group? No, I wouldn't say we're like this large group of black males walking around. <laughs> but we all kind of know each other. It's just comforting to see another person that looks like you. While more black men graduated from college over the past few decades, the number in medical school dropped between 1978 and 2014. In 1978, 1,410 black men applied to medical school, and 542 ended up enrolling. In 2014, both those numbers were down. 1,337 applied and 515 enrolled. This shocked Akpatare. You would think that the conditions would be a lot different than they were back in 1978. Those figures come from a report from the Association of American Medical Colleges. Every other minority group, including Asians and Hispanics, saw growth in applicants. Enrollment statistics for 2015 out this week show a modest gain of 8% for black men. It's a positive sign, but the number is still almost stagnant. 
Dr. Dale Okorodudu, a pulmonary specialist in Dallas, worries a lack of black male doctors could be bad for patients. Studies show people are more likely to follow doctors' directions on, say, medications or exercise if they can relate to them. You can tell the, the way the patient looks at you or they'll say things like, oh, I'm so glad to see you, or a patient who just saw me in the hallway and say, hey, brother, I'm glad to see you here. There's not enough of us out here. Okorodudu has been trying to figure out why so few black men go into medicine. His conclusion? The lack of role models. If you're a black male, let's say you're growing up in an inner-city neighborhood, there's so many different things that you have the option to try to go into, whether it's various entertainment industries, music, sports, comedy, or whether it's getting involved with the church or whether it's um, business. Those things are directly there in front of you. But when you're talking about the medical workforce, none of us are directly there in front of them. And it can take a decade to become a doctor, says med student Jeffrey Okanye. A lot of friends of mine, black males, are engineers, They go to school for four years. They have a job, great pay. They even had internships that I was highly jealous of. Okanye, Akpatare, and Okorodudu have something else in common. My mom was a nurse. I got interested in medicine because my aunt was actually a doctor. Particularly my brother Daniel, who's a doctor. He's been a mentor for me the whole journey. Yep, role models in the family. And all three are the children of immigrants. This is a national trend. And Okorodudu says black men who applied to med school in 1978 were probably from families who had been in the U.S. for generations. Whereas individuals who are applying to med school now, a great number of them, like myself included, are actually Nigerian-American. So if we actually broke it down that way, I'm sure that factor is even more alarming. Alarming, he says, because African-Americans who've been in the U.S. for generations aren't getting in the med school pipeline. Okorodudu has started an online mentoring service called Diverse Medicine. Sometimes, he says, the key to getting kids interested is simply seeing a black man in a white coat. For NPR News, I'm Lauren Silverman in Dallas. So how's the college responding to this incident? We're having a um, a race forum. And what's that? A forum on race so we can discuss the incident and the surrounding issues. Of race. So the usual lip service. Uh, no comment. Two fraternities under fire, allegations of racial insensitivity involving frats at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Now SMU is reviewing the racially offensive theme of a planned off-campus party. News 8's Rebecca Lopez joins us live on campus with the image and party theme the university says promoted negative stereotypes, Rebecca. Well, the fraternities were planning a theme party with a racist theme, and many here on campus were disturbed by it. The university president did make them uh, cancel that party, but it raises questions of whether or not fraternities and sororities here, at least some of them, may be tolerating racism. It's this flyer that has gotten two fraternities in trouble. They were planning to host an ice party. They asked partygoers to bring out their bling, jerseys, and inner thug. You know, a lot of times, you know, the characterization of the person is a thug, and it's very, very, has a long history of being associated with African Americans and minorities in general. The president of SMU made the Pi Kappa Alphas and the Alpha Epsilon Pies cancel the party, calling it offensive. In a statement, he said, the key point is that SMU students should know better than to engage in such irresponsible and insensitive conduct. You know, I'm angry. But I'm, you know, I'm also disappointed, but, you know, I'm also um, inspired to create change. 
To add fuel to the fire on a Greek website called Greek Rant, a student claiming to be a sorority member posted racist comments about black women, saying black women did not belong in the predominantly white sororities because they are aesthetically unpleasing to the eye. She went on to say, why do black women think they are entitled to joining our sororities? Honestly, this puts us off from y'all even more. As we were shooting footage on Greek Row at SMU, some fraternity members walked by and told us they thought the fraternities did nothing wrong. And some people say those attitudes are part of the problem. Now, SMU issued a response to the anonymous sorority posting saying that the uh, content was abhorrent and does not represent the standards of SMU. But they also wanted us to point out that there's no way to really tell who posted that and if that person was actually a sorority member. Reporting live on the SMU campus, Rebecca Lopez, Channel 8 News. Disturbing the peace. The video is stunning. A muscular cop leans over a skinny schoolgirl, flips the chair in which she sits, sending her to a hard fall to the floor on her back. Before she can disentangle herself from the desk chair, she is seized and thrown across the room like a rag doll. She is immediately handcuffed and arrested for disturbing her classroom. According to published accounts, she was said to have been a non-participant in class and ordered to leave the classroom. When she refused to leave, the school's so-called resource officer was notified. When policeman Ben Fields arrived at the classroom, he went into Rambo mode on the child. The rest is infamy. Several months ago, a video showed a mad robocop assaulting a young teenage girl in a bikini. This latest police attack on a young girl is almost identical, except it happened in a classroom. Consider this. The girl in class never assaulted anyone. She merely refused to leave. Was this more disturbing than the madcap cop response, which looked more at home in a WWE ring than a classroom? It tells us the nature of public schools, and more ominously, the nature of police. Are cops there to protect the students or the staff from the students? What is the function of teachers, to teach obedience or to teach freedom? Events such as these show us an ugly, uncomfortable truth about American schools and how they interact in the lives of children, especially black children. The imagery of a beefy black cop throwing a white teenage girl across the classroom would have evoked an immediate response. That this has not speaks volumes about the degraded value of the lives and well-being of black children in America today. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. So uh, I want to ask you also, and the panel too, sure. about the, the, the thing that everybody was talking about this week, the guy they call Officer Slam yeah. in yeah. Columbia, South Carolina. This guy body slammed this 16-year-old oh, yeah, this, this black girl in, in class. I mean, she would not give up her phone, yeah. uh, which was wrong, and then she wouldn't leave the room, which is wrong. But he compounded it by, I think this is just horrendous to, to treat a, a child like this, a, a teenager. Um, but I also have sympathy for people in authority because I think parents just let kids do anything nowadays so they never listen to authority. And 
not having any kids myself or ever being around them except on a plane, I'm basing this on movies and television. <laughs> Am I wrong that parents are just not doing the job? It's overzealous policing and underzealous parenting? First of all, Bill, you're assuming that all of these kids have parents and have... No, she was a foster child, that's true. But I'm... And some of them come from very difficult situations. Of course. I've had this experience working with some of these kids. Now, I'm not excusing them, but I want to tell you, this cop could have broken her back. Oh, horrible. He could have broken her neck. Yeah, we're not She defending. could be dead today. We're not defending. And so he overreacted. Yes. Mr. Slam, whatever they call him had no right to pick up that young lady no. and the chair All and, right. you know, throw them across the room. Okay. And thank God it wasn't my child. But what, yeah. <laughs> I will say, Bill, if I get, yes. I see the, I saw another video of a guy slamming the principal down. And when I was in school, I was scared of, maybe because of my, my mom, but I was scared and respectful of teachers. Me and too. I think that's getting a little blurrier because you see him in class like, fuck you. And it's very tough when you it's, see kids that are 13 that are this tall beating up teachers. It, it, it's back and forth. You know, the teachers get uh, too tough with them, but then the kids that you're actually scared of in classes that are 15, 16, I'm scared of kids as young as nine. <laughs> <laughs> it's, but it's so true. When we were kids, there was a, 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 an alliance between the parents and the teachers that the kids could not drive a wedge through. And now the alliance is against the teachers. That's why they can't teach. Because the little brats go home and complain, and then the parents complain to the teachers. They're not on the side of the teachers. All that may be true, some of that may be true, but the fact of the matter is there are different ways to handle these situations. You can dismiss the whole class, you can leave and you can get with the principal and you can talk about what's the best way to do this. You can pick up the phone, you can call the parents, but for the police to come into the school and pick up the kid in the yes, chair and we agree. That's, That's a too bad much. example. That's the part we agree That's on. Too much. <laughs> Can it's a 200-pound man not rest a, a cell phone from a 76-pound child? I don't think it was about the cell phone at that point. It was about not leaving the room. Mr. Slam. Well, people continue to buzz about the incident at Spring Valley High School involving a student and a school resource officer. This afternoon, we have team coverage with the latest developments. Senior reporter Jack Kinsey's at the State House, where a rally will be held tomorrow. First, Mike DeSuma is at Spring Valley, where students gathered earlier today to support the officer. Mike. Well, Dondi, out here on Sparkleberry Lane, uh, it has been very, very quiet. And at no point did the small demonstration that happened at the school this morning ever spill outside of its walls. But as we've seen from many posts on social video, including Twitter videos, inside the walls of Spring Valley High School, it was a much different story. Richland 2 District officials confirmed it was about 10 a.m. when students in several classrooms got up and walked out and headed for the school's atrium, uh, showing their support for uh, former school resource officer Ben Fields. Some apparently were wearing T-shirts that read, Bring Back Fields, while others in cell phone video we've seen were chanting, Free Fields. Now, at some point, the school's principal, Jeff Timoney, eventually addressed the students, telling them he hears their concerns. He, however, said the focus of the school at this point should be learning, and with that, he asked students to return to class, and according to several students, uh, then the demonstration peacefully broke up. Now, uh, many people we talked to, including students and parents, told us the focus of this small demonstration 
demonstration today was to show their support for Officer Fields and the man they say is not represented by those 15 seconds of video we saw earlier this week. He was a great guy. Like, he protected us and everything. Like, he was our resource officer. We always could depend on him and everything. Like, he was, like, every time I saw him, he was always joking around with people. It was never like, oh, I'm about to body slam you. Like, now, in his remarks, Timoney, the principal also uh, told students at Spring Valley High School that no students will be reprimanded for their conduct early this morning. According to several people, including students we spoke to outside of the building, uh, district officials uh, and many people inside the school knew this was coming. An email was sent out before the demonstration started uh, telling teachers to let students go, to let them uh, take part in this uh, without any uh, thought of repercussion. At this point, uh, when it comes to what exactly happened inside the school today and talking with students, there will be a football game tonight. And they expect the message that they, it's going to come out of that is going to continue at that football game later on tonight. Judy, Donnie. You know, if you're going to lose a job, this is probably the worst way to lose a job. Mm. Uh, and it also could get you kicked out of college. Yeah, yeah. There was um, so there's a college student, an ASU student, not just any college student, ASU student who had an internship, and mm. the internship is done, and she's talking to ASU. She's got to talk to her, the dean, yeah. on Friday about what she did. So maybe losing her job is, is not the worst thing that's happened. Maybe the worst thing that happened is you post a photo on Twitter of yourself and a friend in a cotton field, okay. and the caption you write on Twitter is, our inner N came out today. Our inner N-word. She didn't say N-word. She spelled it out. Our inner N came out today. So you're 20 years old. Um, you either don't know you're a racist or you don't know. No, sorry. No, you have to know, right? You're a racist. Yeah, that's what it is. You I'm have sorry. to know if you take the picture in front of a cotton field yeah. and pick some cotton and turn to the camera and smile you... and then put the N-word in there. It's you got to understand what you're doing. You know the context right. of what's going on, right. okay? Because cotton fields, uh, black people were picking, uh, slaves were picking cotton, right. and white owners were raping their wives, were beating the men. Uh, if th This kid, this 20-year-old kid, had to know what cotton field, what it was about, slavery, the N-word, and she decides... You know what? It's going to be a great day. My inner end just came out because I'm picking cotton. And you Yikes. just got to you just got to scratch your head and say, "What is the matter with you?" You know, I, I almost am glad that she did it because at least we know who the racists are in this world. That's really easy to pick out a racist when you go on Twitter and basically you out yourself. She so, has apologized. So what? 
Well, does that make a difference? Does that make a difference that she's apologized and said, I deleted it, mm-hmm. I got rid of it, you wrote I, it. I apologize fully, I take full responsibility for what I've done. Still tweeted it. It's not okay. Should have thought uh, about that before you tweeted it. It's, I, 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 I just don't understand how you put those things together mm. and then think it's a good idea to push it out to everybody. I mean, you know... We're old men compared to 20-year-olds. You would think that they would understand the ramifications of putting stuff out there, but they obviously don't. You know, uh, I'm, I, that's an... They that's, don't understand that stuff stays yeah. out there forever. But when I was 20, I wouldn't have even thought that, let alone write it. Right. Let alone uh, write it on a poster and, t- and, and walk it around right. town. Right, So... I'm not. I don't want to. I'm not letting this lady off the hook. I'm not letting the 20 year old off the hook. You might get kicked out of college. Um, she says she's going to talk to the dean on well, on Friday, and we'll have because you know if I'm the dean, I, I've got to, I can't just ignore this or sweep it under the rug because ASU other ASU students seemingly have had the same problem. They some, either don't know some. or they think it's funny to make fun of something that happened long ago and people are over. By the way, racism, slavery, people aren't over it. By the way. I, I just don't understand how you have a whole group of what, you know, intelligent, you know, young people think it's okay to use the N-word and just post it in front of a cotton field. Uh, her name is Erica. She talked to a Fox 10. I deleted it, but it was much too late. I apologize fully, completely. I take full responsibility for what I have done. It's just, it's not okay. People have been telling me that, and I do know better. My parents tell me, you need to watch what you post. Everybody tells me, you need to watch what you post. And it was just a lack of my better judgment at the moment. I was not thinking at all. Okay, but even, you know, she posted it, so now we know what she's about. I have Uh, said things, I've said things, not posted things, mm -hmm. that I immediately regret. But they've never, it's it's not as though they are. To the degree of racism yeah. that this is. I mean, if you were to teach a class on race, mm-hmm. this is the example that you would give of not to do. Yeah, and it's not even social media. Uh, this is something that went through her head. Yeah, and then she got her she got her her little thumbs out and she started to uh, tweet about it. So it's something I think is in her heart. And I'm tired of letting people off the hook for this. I'm glad she took responsibility, but you know what? You're going to have to live with this for a while because it's out there. And so if you, if a future employer types in her name in a Google search, mm-hmm. this it's going to come out. You know, I grew up around black people my whole life. I mean, if the truth be told, I probably know niggas better than you. And don't go getting offended by my use of the quote-unquote N-word. I have a black wife and two biracial kids, so I feel I have a right. I don't give a goddamn what that prick Spike Lee says. Tarantino was right. Nigger is just a word. If old dirty bastard could use it every other word, why can't I? Well, I would prefer if you did not use that word in my presence. Oh, really? Nigger, 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 nigger. One of Spike Lee's classic films, Bamboozled, is 15 years old this month. It's a film largely about modern-day minstrelsy, like putting black actors in blacker face for a TV show and the implications of that. We'll talk to Spike Lee in just a minute and the curator of a whole film series at BAM built around the bamboozled anniversary. First, here's a 30-second clip from the film in which TV producer Pierre Delacroix, played by Damon Wayans, first pitches the idea for his show, Mantan, the new millennium minstrel show, to his boss, Thomas Dinwiddie, played by Michael Rappaport. Delacroix speaks first. Mantan, sleep and eat. Two... Real coons. Real, keeping now, it real. Baby. I know that 
this is out there. Right. But it is satire. No, 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 no. Listen, I want you to take it out there. I mean, let's swing for the bleachers on this one, okay? Every week, we follow the trials and tribulations of Mantan, Sleep and Eat, two real coons, the dusty duo. What are their character traits? Ignorant. Uh. Dull-witted. Uh. Lazy. Uh. And unlucky. Uh. <laughs> exactly. Exactly what I'm looking for. Suffice to say, the boss was not supposed to react positively. Delacroix, who was hoping to get fired in the plot, expected him to be highly offended. With me now are filmmaker Spike Lee and Ashley Clark, guest curator at BAM Cinematheque for the eight-film series accompanying the screening of Bamboozled, which began last Wednesday or on Wednesday and continues till Tuesday. He's also the author of the book, Facing Blackness, Media, and Minstrelsy in Spike Lee's Bamboozled. By the way, Spike Lee is also the Grand Marshal of this Sunday's New York Marathon. (laughs) So we'll touch on that, and don't be surprised if I throw in a Mets question. Thank you both very much for doing this. Welcome to WNYC. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Ashley, you write in the book that the film was not only necessary in 2000, it was prescient. How so in the context of today? I think the film touches on a lot of issues uh, that intersect with race, um, stereotypes, and the power of the media. And a lot of the things that the film was talking about in terms of the stereotypes that we saw in 2000 are still relevant today. Um, and it's funny that this, this program coincides with Halloween, where we see you know, every year in the news stories of blackface parties, and you think that these things are dead and buried, but they keep coming back. And any critic that said in 2000 that the film was unnecessary or Spike was over the top. I think these things prove that it was very far from that. Spike, would you pick up on that and talk about how you saw Bamboozled in the context of 2000 and how you think it relates to today? Well, the year 2000 marked the 100th year of cinema and 50 years of television. I just wanted to have a, like a retrospective of the damage that had been done to de- dehumanize African Americans and uh, I just had a, a lot, a lot, a lot of material to draw upon. Ashley, why this, out of all the Spike Lee films, for a book-length exploration? Because there's so much in the film. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating on an aesthetic level. It was the first film, uh, the first Hollywood film, major American studio film, to be shot on digital video. Um, of course, that's commonplace now, but this was very trailblazing then. Um, and it's, it's a film that was slept on uh, by audiences and very much kind of dismissed by critics who I think were trepidatious about really digging into what the film was saying. So I thought having the, the space of a book to really dig into every single element of the film was precisely what I want to do as a writer, which is really fight for film as an art form and as something socially and politically significant. Uh, Spike, do you consider this kind of a sleeper within the context of your own filmography? I will mention. Oh, I, got, I got a lot of sleepers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, my my son uh, was assigned to see to, to watch Bamboozled um, as part of his American history class, junior year of high school. So. You know, that was just last year. Uh, so there's something about this film that seems to have made a comeback or kind of been a, you know, a, a, a sleeper and come on gradually in, um, in American cultural and intellectual thought. Well, you know, sometimes people got, it takes a while for you to kind of same thing happened with 25th Hour 2. So, you know, people, you know, you can't predict that stuff when uh, you put it out there, but... Uh, Things take their own time. They have their own arc. 
what are the films that you're curating at BAM? So, to go with Bamboo. Do you want to run down the list? Yeah. Um, two, two of the films are films that Spike himself has uh, explicitly s- suggested are influences. So these are uh, Sidney Lumet and Paddy Chayefsky's Network from 1976 and A Face in the Crowd by Ilya Kazan and Bud Schulberg, uh, to whom Spike uh, dedicated Bamboozled. These are films that are very much about the increasing power of, of media and television on the American public, and they're very prescient films. Uh, the other half of the program uh, are films including Illusions by Julie Dash, uh, two films by the documentarian Marlon Riggs, uh, a film called Live in Large, and a film called Dear White People, which came out last year. And there's a couple of short films thrown in there too. And these films are more about uh, race and media and stereotypes and how they all intersect. And the idea of putting these films together is to contextualise Bamboozled because there's so much going in it. I would, I would hope that... If somebody buys tickets for all of the films, they'll emerge with a, a fuller understanding of Bamboozled and the issues it puts forward. Like what, for example? What do you think a viewer might come away with who sees the whole series differently from someone who just sees Bamboozled? Uh, a, full, a full understanding of precisely how stereotypes are deliberately manipulated um, from uh, American theatrical minstrel traditions in the 1830s um, and, and moving forward through that and how none of this stuff is by accident. And how, you know, something that struck me last year when I was uh, the incident with Officer Darren Wilson and Michael Brown and his testimony, and he spoke of it came at me like a demon. And for me, there's no, um, no exaggeration to draw a direct line between the savage brutes running around in blackface in Birth of a Nation in 1915 um, to, to that statement. And I think what, what will people will come away with is a real understanding of quite how powerful media is in shaping racial perceptions. Spike, you want to comment on uh, maybe any of the favorites from this list of other films that are accompanying yours at BAM this week? Well, you can, you can add The Producers by Mel Brooks, that twist on something that you want to go wrong, but goals are great. <laughs> and, uh, but, and then... Bud Schubert was a dear, dear friend of mine, so uh, he he loved Bamboozled, and, and, and he was very honored, you know, that we uh, gave, you know, so many nods and homages in Bamboozled to his great script. In fact, people already noticed uh, the comp- this film, Faith in the Crowd, directed by Kazan and written by Bud, that was the direct follow-up to On the Waterfront. And it was, it was as far as Hollywood went, it was a disaster. Nobody went to see it. And then you look at, again, you look at Billy Wilder's uh, Ace in the Hole, which is a, which was the follow-up to Some Like It Hot. And now, and those, I love that. I mean, those two films are great, Ace in the Hole and Face in the Crowd. And both of those were complete box office and critical flops. Flops, but I didn't know that. But those films still, I mean, those are great films, and those are films that follow up their two biggest, two biggest films. Here's another clip from Bamboozled. At this point, the show is becoming a huge commercial success, but controversial. So the network calls in a consultant, Myrna Goldfarb, to brand the show in such a way that it can't be called racist. Here's a minute of mostly Myrna at work. Okay, the Mantan Manifesto. Catchy, ain't it? So is syphilis. <clears throat> Number one, 
We gainfully employ African Americans in front of and behind the camera. You've got to cover yourselves, people. Very important. I'm talking, I need a black grip, right. a black gaffer, a black PA. Have them there. Number two, let the audience decide. Three, who put these critics in charge anyway, right? Right. These so-called cultural police. Four, who determines what is black? Yeah, what is black? Yes. Okay, Sleep and Eat and Mantan are lazy and unemployed, but we are certainly not saying anything about the entire African-American community. They're slackers. Slackers. I took a couple of years after graduate school and walked around the European countryside. It's not the biggest deal in the world. Five, Mantan is a satire. Six, if they can't take a joke, you know what? F them. Yeah, F them. So, Ashley, what you're smiling. What were you thinking listening to that scene, probably for the 150th time? Yeah, um, I think it's a, it's a funny scene, and it speaks to the, the doublespeak, the, the kind of corporate doublespeak that can go on at executive level, particularly when people are uncomfortable around certain issues. Um, and I think that scene's very, very important in establishing that idea of, of how, you know, how executive stuff is not where we need it to be. Lenny in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hi, Lenny. Hi, Brian. Brian, um, I've uh, it's an interesting thing. Um, I don't want to give up too much of your time, but years ago I first met Spike. I'm in Brook. I'm from Brooklyn as well. I was a chef at a at a at a sports bar on Broadway, and he he had just did she's got to have it, and he walked up to me and he said, "Brother, I'd like you to support my film. Would you go see it?" And I was like, "Of course." And I've seen all of his work since then. And, and what's your, do you have a question for Spike? Yeah, exactly. Uh, my question is, uh, Mr. Lee, when you made Bamboozled, uh, did, were you disappointed that a lot of people, black Americans just didn't get it? Oh yeah, I mean, I was disappointed at that time that nobody got it. Not just, just not just, Bamboozled was not made specifically for African American audience. As with all your films. But you were disappointed that what what that people didn't get it didn't get what, sir? They got it. We would be on the we would be on the phone now. He was, and my man would have written the book. <laughs> Come on now, right? Um, why did you write the story as black people being put in blackface rather than non-black people being put in in blackface, which is a more common um, you know, instance of that that gets discussed. Because that's the way the story needs to be, sir. It's about an African-American, or, or as, as, and the correct pronunciation is Delacroix. Pierre Delacroix calls himself a Negro. So it was just a greater impact to have black people blackface. And if I could just kind of jump in and say that, uh, you know, part of the research, which was really incredible to me, was finding out about... Uh, black performers who performed in blackface because it was something that I didn't know too much about. Yeah, Burt Williams, precisely, um, who starred in the first ever all-black cast film in 1913, but they couldn't release it because uh, they were trying to get it together, but then Birth of a Nation came out, and it wasn't racist enough, <laughs> you know, when it came out, um, and, and the, the compromises that he had to go through um, and, and others of his type. Ashley, you write in the book about the increasingly prominent roles that some black actors are getting to play, but you question what the roles are. Yeah. Mo Monique and Precious, Octavia Spencer in The Help, uh, Lupita Nyong'o in 12 Years a Slave. You write respectively 
a psychotic welfare queen, a neo-mammy in a white savior period picture, and a chronically abused slave. Mm -hmm. What does that tell you? What it says to me is that there are still very distinct codes for what what roles the establishment will get behind and reward. And that's, no nece- that's not a specific comment on 12 Years a Slave, which I think is a fine film. I think Steve McQueen's a great filmmaker. But it's still a slave movie, and it's still a kind of not progressive role um, to be winning awards for. So we can you know, absolutely be happy about increasing diversity and, and more black and brown faces on screen. But I think it's really important for us all to be vigilant and look at what these roles are and what they signify. And I know that one of the current references that you make in the book is you couldn't help but think about Bamboozled when you were reading ta Coates' widely read Atlantic Magazine article, The Case for Reparations. How do you see them as related? The, the, the relationship is one of a continuum of absolutely drawing a line between now and then. And what ta Coates does in his article is draws a very, very clear line, an unambiguous line between um, slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, um, mass incarceration, and he draws a narrative between that. And I think what Bamboozled does so beautifully is draws that same narrative in entertainment from the early days of the the 1840s up to now. And it uses satirical methods, and it's over the top in some ways, in in, in great ways, in funny ways. But it leaves you fairly unambiguous that there is a, a line to be drawn from then to now. Spike, want to weigh in on that? Have you been reading Ta-Nehisi Coates? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a great piece of work. Great piece of work. Brett in Brooklyn. You're on WNYC. Hi, Brett. Good morning. How are you? Okay. Great. I just wanted to reach out and say uh, thanks to Spike Lee for his production and, and the writing of Bamboozled. Um, and the, the movie itself, because it gave me a chance as an English teacher when I taught in Hempstead, um, an opportunity to have something physical as a parallelism to Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. And the stereotypical, um, I guess, characters that were depicted um, gave them a visual to help them understand it. Spike, what do you think about that analogy as a parallel to... Oh, uh, yeah, there's definitely some things, you know, between Ralph Ellison's epic novel and uh, Bamboozle. I understand, and I want to thank the the teacher for sharing this film with her. We're students. Brett, thanks a lot. I see you have a new film coming out next month. Um, December 4th. December 4th. How do you say it? Chirac? Chirac? Chirac. Chirac. And the mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, has gotten into it with you about the title, equating Chicago with Iraq in any way. Did you consider changing the title? No. That's an emphatic no. Want to give our listeners a preview of that film? Any kind of verbal trailer? Say this, then I have to get off the phone. Sure. We started shooting. We started shooting Chirac on the South Side of Chicago this past summer, summer 2015. Our first day of shooting was June 1st. First day of filming was June 1st. Last day of filming was July 9th. During that time, from the 1st of June to July 9th, 331 people wounded and shot, 65 murdered. New York City is three times the population of Chicago, yet Chicago is more homicides than New York City. 
And there is your preview for Spike Lee's coming film. Uh, Spike, I know, I know you got to go. I'm going to keep Ashley on and ask him one more question. Thanks a lot for joining us. I All really right, appreciate it. Thank you very it. much. Thank you. And uh, Ashley Clark, who's curating the series at BAM of eight other films to go with the 15th anniversary screening of Spike Lee's Bamboozled and has written the book Facing Blackness, Media, and Minstrelsy in Spike Lee's Bamboozled for, let's say, the non-baseball fans, non-trick-or-treaters. Still tickets available for tomorrow night or any of the films in the series, which I see goes through next Wednesday? Yeah. um, Tuesday? The screening of Bamboozled sold out last Wednesday, so there's another screening on Halloween. So please, no fancy dress (laughs) from anybody, if you know what I mean. Um, Facing the crowd, living large, uh, dear white people next week. There's still a few tickets left, so do, do get on that. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Brian Lehrer on WNYC context of white supremacy Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date Saturday October 31st 2015 so I have been told I hope folks are staying safe uh, codified Uh, this is a day notorious Uh, for people making excuses to do all sorts of non-constructive things, certainly binge consumption uh, of alcohol and intoxicants, just that alone uh, always makes for uh, a dangerous evening. You know it'll probably be an increased uh, number of enforcement officers out on the road. Uh, I would be codified if you're going to be out and about. uh, Buckle up. Definitely, it would be my recommendation. No intoxicants, no alcohol if you're going to be uh, behind the wheel, even if you're going to be a passenger, uh, particularly with this weekend. Uh, and just uh, it's been my experience. A lot of people, uh, this is an excuse to engage in a lot of tomfoolery, whether it's going to be uh, vandalism or just, you know, all kinds of, of hijinks and what have you under the guise of having fun, just doing a little celebrating. Remain codified. I would try to avoid that. We have way too many problems as black people. That's it. Uh, compensatory calling. Folks would like to participate. The number to dial is 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate make sure i get in thanks to all the folks who were patient uh with us yesterday we had pretty uh massive uh technical issue issues and had to use a temporary number and and all that and and folks uh a good number of them even stuck it out through all that and dialed in on the other line and thanks to the folks for being patient and glad we got all that resolved that was not uh failing on my part that was likely interference from racist man racist woman but that should be resolved we'll keep an eye on it moving forward the number again for folks if you'd like to participate for today is 641-715-3640 and the code is 564-943-POUND Press star six if you would like to participate. Quick comments uh, I'll get in before we hit the phone lines. Uh, I did not know it was the 15-year anniversary 
uh, bamboozled uh, until just within the last uh, 24 hours. Uh, great film. Would definitely encourage uh, folks to check it out. We've talked about it on the program before. I think I've used some sound clips from it. Uh, before and in fact we had uh, one of the stars of the film uh, MC Search uh, he was a member of the Mau Mau's the group that ultimately uh, kidnapped uh, Mantan played by Savion Glover legendary artist entertainer uh, participated in, in kidnapping and killing him but we had him on the program and uh, spent a good chunk of time talking about his involvement in the film and, and uh, what that whole process was like at any rate uh, just quickly in the point that they made about whether or not people got that film bamboozled or whether they went out to see it uh, in the theaters uh, I can speak for myself I know I saw the trailer for it and I wanted to go see it in the theater at the time but it never played in the theater in uh, my town where I was uh, a resident at that time in Virginia it just never came to the theaters I had to wait and see it on DVD and when I was talking to other people at the time, looking for trying to get information, I wanted to check it out. I was hearing the same thing from other people who wanted to see it, and it just either it didn't come to their town or it was there very quickly. Uh, it was there maybe a week or two, and then it was gone. Uh, so uh, I said that to me is not surprising. I think that's a theme. I think we've even talked about that before. When you have black films, uh, black filmmakers, predominantly black cast, uh, that that's pretty typical where they have a difficult time with distribution, difficult time getting cinemas to have the film and, and to have it be there for enough time for people to get an opportunity to see it. And the whole time, unless it's some nonsense, you know, unless it's going to be black people acting, you know, a fool, doing some minstrelsy that he talked about there. Anyway, uh, if folks that are in the New York area, if you have a chance, if you want to go check it out, that would be great. Love to uh, hear your, your thoughts if you're able to go see the exhibit, any of the other films that are associated with it. I have seen A Face in the Crowd. I've seen Network as well, as well as Mr. Riggs, where I think I've seen almost all the films that they mentioned in association with it, except The Producers and uh, The Illusions uh, by Julie Dash. I think that's her name, but I want to check the, uh, the latter out sometime in the near future. Moving forward. Uh, other quick points I wanted to make sure uh, that I touched on. Uh, Dr. Travis Bristol, uh, he was on the program on Thursday. Uh, we talked about his research with education and why black male teachers uh, are leaving uh, the classroom. He did send me the report that he authored. Uh, we talked about it briefly before he exited about uh, helping white female teachers who are in Guyana, South America, work with black male students. Uh, I asked if he would uh, email it to me. He did. Uh, and I shared the link where people can access if you want to read it or download it. I shared it on my Facebook page. If you know you have difficulties, if you can't find it, feel free to drop me a line, but it should uh, be there. Uh, definitely. Uh, I'm looking forward to check it out. He just, he got it to me today. I'm super appreciative. Thank you to Dr. Bristol. Uh, next up, uh, when they were talking about, it was many clips I felt where they, uh, suggested, uh, white people being ignorant or having implicit bias. That was one thing that I appreciated that came up emphatically, uh, during the segment on bamboozled that looking at the history of these grotesque projections of blackness, long uninterrupted timeline. This is, I believe the 100 year anniversary of birth of a nation that was mentioned uh, in that segment, this is deliberate. It becomes painfully obvious that this is not accidental, that white people are not ignorant, that this is not implicit bias, that this is deliberate warfare against black people. They know the power 
of these images. Mr. Scotty Reed talks about that all the time, the power of media. Uh, Minister Malcolm X talked about tons of folks. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, they know <laughs> this. And particularly when you have this stuff that goes all over the world and you get to play it 8,000 times, they know. That's why Birth of a Nation still comes on uh, AMC Network. And that's why Bamboozled is not quite in that level of circulation. Very, very clear. I appreciated that coming out. And it's nonsense. That's the way you should uh, process it every time that that is nonsense. Uh, It does not make any sense. And people are not being true at all uh, when they say that uh, any aspect of racism, white supremacy is a result of just implicit or white people aren't thinking or they're not conscious. They're not aware. If we could just get them literature, they would stop doing all this. That is utter. It's I can't even say it's utter folly. It is dangerously illogical. Moving forward, the segment on the uh, doctors, it reminded me of Dr. McGriff. Uh, He did the segment on NPR. It was 2013, and he used the phrase 55 miles per hour means you, black boy, uh, meaning that the rules are for me as a black person. He talked about, and this is, I think he'd been to... uh, got his training and done all his education. I think he went to an Ivy League school and all these fancy degrees and diplomas and everything and great physician. And he said that white people, when they come and he's, he's trying to work with them, that they will say, oh, wait a minute, this uppity nigger, who do you think you're talking to? Trying to use a vocabulary. Who do you think you are, nigger? You better remember your piece in this in the, in the interview. They, I think, spent about eight minutes where he was talking about different things. And then it got compounded. He did this interview on NPR he got in trouble. The hospital, uh, he was in North Carolina, Mr. Reed. He was in North Carolina. They were going to terminate him uh, after he did the interview because it got attention. And they were like, what are you talking about? What nigga? They didn't call him a nigga, but I mean, they might as well have. Nigga, what do you think you're doing? Going on the radio saying that we are racist and people are calling you up. Get your bags and get on out of here. That is exactly what happened. And it ended up after some rigmarole that they ended up keeping him on. But I had contacted him directly to be a guest on the program and he was going to wait it out and see uh, if he could make time to come speak with us. But then after he was almost fired, he was like, I'm done. I'm not doing not doing any more radio, which I totally understand and, and wish him the best. But I, I would encourage folks to check that out. You can just Google 55 miles per hour means. Yeah, and it'll probably auto bing, take you. It'll probably be one of the top two uh, results. You can check it out. I think we played that clip in the archives many times before. But that's another one where they in that segment did not mention racism white supremacy and white people have done a deliberate effort in making sure that black people are not becoming doctors i think they just had that great piece in the new york times about how uh xavier down in new orleans uh that they produce i believe the most black doctors in this area of the world xavier university uh down in southern louisiana uh see what else did i want to make sure i got in i have heard a whole lot. I heard some more uh, today in connection with the South Carolina piece. We talked about it on Wednesday, and then I was able to observe for myself uh, the folks who've taken the position, you know, black people are cowards and yum, yum, yum. I've heard all that rhetoric before. I have zero interest in hearing any of that today. If that's the position that you've taken, that, you know, black parents are cowards or the black teacher in the classroom down in South Carolina is a coward uh, and a chump and a lame or any of the other cute names uh, that folks make up, Please find another program. I have heard that for years. I heard it with Trayvon Martin. I heard it with Renisha McBride. You can just go down the list. Every time that one of these incidents happen and people come out and they talk real tough 
uh, about, you know, what they would do if that happened to them or if that happened to their child and the rest of you niggas are no good and blah, blah, blah. It, any of that talk, every time I've heard it, I've not seen where it solves one problem. It is not worth a pecan. If you think that that is constructive, that that's going to help us get where we need to go with dealing with racism, white supremacy, cool and the gang. Just make sure that you find a different program because I have no interest in hearing one syllable of any of that. That said, in the same vein, just because I know when the emotion gets up and people are angry or whatever the case may be or sad or outraged or whatever it is, uh, the metaphors tick up. If we could have no metaphors today, that would be grand. No metaphors. Just be clear, direct, specific about what it is that you mean as opposed to comparing it to something else and and that sort of thing. Because I've noticed that that's when clarity goes out and and we're not really being uh, direct, accurate, honest about what we mean to say, what we're trying to communicate when we're speaking about racism, white supremacy. That's it. If you could watch the background noise, share one time and then allow other folks uh, to get in whatever comments that they would like to offer. That would be great. The number one more time is six, four, one, seven, one, five, three, six, four, zero. And the code is five, six, four, nine, four, three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. All the folks who dialed in with a hand up, the line should be open. Feel free to chime in. Can we heard? Yes, sir. Um, how are you doing, Augustine? I'm all of the callers. Um, I kind of want to wait for the uh, workplace racism. I'm sorry. Oh, right on. No apologies there. We will definitely make time for that, sir. All right, sir. I'll meet myself. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good afternoon. Good evening. Um, to Gus, to all the callers, Thomas Smith and York. Um, a few observations this week. Um, before I get into the clips, um, I got to check a chance to see um, Steph Velocious interview on ESPN. Did you get a chance to see it, Gus, or any other callers? I don't know if you did, but, um, man, the way they interviewed him made it seem like he was the problem, you know, that, that's just the way I got it. And, and the way they broke into the next segment, I mean, if anyone could have seen it, I think that you'll probably see, think the same thing. Uh, also, the media coverage on this, these white bikers, I don't know if y'all remember last year, or, or maybe it was the summer, group of white, gang of white biker gang um, went into Waco, Texas, and shot up this um, restaurant, had a big gunfight. Um, I mean, I People got killed. Multiple people were shot. Um, they have some of these guys on, on camera shooting the gun. And the, the whole coverage was about, you know, hey, these guys don't deserve to go to jail for this. Like, it, it's such a contrast. And I contrasted it last time, and I, and I do it again to the the bike 
they weren't even a gang, just a group of bikers who were driving down the West Side Highway here in New York, and the guy ran them over, and they chased them, and the way no one shot any guns or anything, but these people are like, some people in jail behind that, you know, it's just, it's just such a contrast. Um, I learned today, um, watching New York One, uh, which is a news channel here in New York, that uh, on Halloween, New York has extra cops out, and they have laws requiring for sex offenders and parolees to stay home, not to open the door for trick-or-treaters. Um, and it was, I guess, because they feel as though they are threats to children. I don't know why this applies to parolees as well as sex offenders. I could definitely see this applying to sex offenders. Um, also, um, another thing um, um, my wife told me today, and I looked it up, and um, Dr. Phil... He had a show with the guy from Subway, Jared. Um, this that guy who lost all the weight eating the Subway sandwiches. And um, the whole show on his his conversations with this other white lady, uh, where he and the white lady are, you know, talking about things they would like to do to underage children. And um, I mean, it's sickening. Um, the white lady, of course, she claims to be acting, um, but she goes to the FBI with um, information about, hey, this guy is dangerous. She had a tape that she had, and they tell her, no, no, go back and get more information. And it took them five years to make this case. And, I mean, these tapes are so implicit, like, how much evidence do you need to give someone, you know? And then contrast that to the black dude who was found innocent, I think. Um, he played Elmo. You know, didn't take that much information to put him behind bars and ruin his name and just destroy his life. I mean, this guy. Now, another thing, uh, the reason why I really mentioned this story was I think that a lot of these children were black that he um, molested. And he brought up a reference to a place in Chicago he would go, Chirac, (laughs) and um, that that he'll be able to have access to 12, 11-year-old kids. And um, I, I just said uh, a lot of his victims, he said, were from single families or broken homes. I just think that no one like cold words. You know, that these were a lot of black victims, a lot of So I'm, I'm just curious to see what comes out of that. Um, as for the clips, um, Governor Christie mentioned um, they, he won 21% of the black vote because of the work he did in Camden. Camden is, man, it, it's it's terrible for me. I don't know what work he did there. But if anyone, I saw one of them Save the Children programs one night, and they were in Camden. I mean, Camden is terrible. Um, um, Bill Mayer's calm little clip there. You know, he's tacky as usual. Tried to blame the parents, you know. At the same time, you know, agreeing, but... You know, using the jokes. You know, he's just very, very refined at his own, the way he he positions it. But I was happy for the black lady. She sounded like she's a black lady. And she was not letting him get away with it. She kept going right back to the point. No, this was a cop. You know, remember this young girl. I get you. I get you. I'm not going with that. You're trying to make a joke out of it after you you, you agree with the point. And I was glad that she stuck with it. Um, And the last piece, um... Then that contrast right into the next segment. Now we had the girl being slammed, 16-year-old girl being slammed by the cop. Here this 20-year-old 
talking, I'm standing in front of a cotton field, taking pictures, like, she's bringing out her inner nigger. And, but they, the guy kept calling her a kid. You know, I mean, she, she's a kid. She's 20. She's a, you know, this is a kid. There's just in contrast, that black 16-year-old, you know, it's, it, it, only one person referred to her and said, wait, this was a kid, you know. I mean, other than that, they try to treat her like she's an adult. And um, that's all I had to say. Thank you. Right on. Just real quick, the black female that was uh, having the exchange with Bill Maher, that was Congresswoman Maxine Waters, uh, who was representing uh, pretty well, I thought. Congresswoman Maxine Waters. Uh, all the other folks who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi, good evening, um, Gus, and to the other callers. Um, so we're on, we're, it's Halloween. Um, and it seems, I don't know, it could be me, but it seems like each Halloween that goes by year after year gets more demonic. I mean, the costumes seem more demonic. Um, things, I don't know, the costumes just seem weirder. There was a couple on Facebook. Um, they were wearing um, black bodies, black naked bodies, um, and the male body had a uh, large penis, and the female outfit had a large breast, and um, the the male had a, a gold chain. Just hacky. I mean, I just I just can't believe. I mean, I guess I can't believe it in the system of white supremacy. But also, they seem to waste a lot of money food and time on on um on Halloween, you know? Um all the people that they could be feeding with all these pumpkins and squashes, they just go to waste. It's just a big waste. And just all the money that they spend on all this foolishness is a lot. Um also, um I'm home tonight because Halloween, like the fourth of July and New Year's Eve this is the third most dangerous night to be out. This is when people are shooting guns in the air or white supremacists shooting at black people. It's just not a good idea to be out in a bow, especially if you live in a big city, you know, where they're shooting and going on. Um, there's a petition um, to remove Don Lemon and Raven Simone um, from the air. I just wish black people were this motivated to sign a petition to get rid of Elizabeth Hasselbeck when she was on The View, um, Hannity, people like Rush Limbaugh, Bill O'Reilly, and to shut down Donald Trump. But we're focused on two black people with no power. You know, I just wish that we could channel that energy into something constructive. Um, as far as the, the black child student victim, um, so they're saying that the cop was called because she wouldn't give up her phone. She probably didn't want to give up her phone because that's the only thing that she had. We don't know if she had pictures of, you know, her mother and her grandmother who had recently passed away. Maybe she had pictures of her home, and this was the only thing that she can identify with. Because in the system of white supremacy, children who are placed in a foster system are stripped of everything, stripped of your home. You got to keep going from school to school, and you know a lot of a lot of clients that I've had. Um, a lot of these foster care places, they're cold places. You know, um, they're places that. I mean, some of these parents are are um, not sensitive, and you know, they're these children are moved from home to home, and 
you know, sometimes a lot of time there's an there's abuse and you know, a lot of these kids they can't even make friends in their schools because they're moved around so much. So if the girl wanted to hold on to the phone, I don't see why she wasn't able to. Because if you look at the video, all these other kids had their phone. How come they didn't give up their phones, but she had to give up hers? That's just something I I, I brought up. And um, let me see. When I first went to college, uh, when I was 19, um, I didn't like my white roommates. I had some very racist roommates. They were from. They used to listen to country music. They were really racist. And I, I didn't have any housing, so I pledged a white sorority just so I could have somewhere to live that was close to the campus. And then, you know, the following year when I got housing, I, you know, I didn't go through with the initiation. But I guess I was codified in my response back then because, um, you know, I needed a place to stay, and that was the only way that I could see getting a decent place to stay at the last minute because um, the black sororities, they didn't have a house. Um, but I did learn a lot with, you know, I, lear I learned a lot when I lived with these, these white girls, and it was something that I didn't want to continue, but I wanted to stay in school and be able to live somewhere. So, you know, um, that's what I did. I guess I used them <laughs> to get what I needed, um, and that's all I wanted to share. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Um, um, I was um, I was about the the girl that got you know slammed by Officer Fields. Um, this guy here, you know, um, you know, first of all, he was a racist, and you know, had this would have been a black male student, you know, had this would have been a, a black male student, I'd say about six feet five. 300 pounds, he'd have probably shot him. There's no doubt in my mind that we'd be looking at another Michael Brown incident. And also, too, I always hear white people, and I keep hearing the same phrase over and over for years. You know, when they, I, I think, you know, they're speaking incorrectly. They said that there's always problem between the African-American community and the police. The problem, they talk about the police like there's some kind of race or religion of, of being an officer is a job. The problem is they don't, in my opinion, white folks don't talk about it correctly. The problem is that there's a problem between races, um, white people and black people. The problem is black and white. They don't, you know, they don't want to admit it. They keep pushing off, oh, it's just the police. No, it's not the police. It's not all, every cop is black. I mean, I'm sorry. Not every cop is white. You got some black cops, Asian cops, whatever. It's the racist white cops that are doing that. Um, also, too, and, you know, they were saying, you know, some people are saying, well, she complied. You know, what? Well, that's not always the case. You know, black people have always, you know, mostly complied. And I always, you know, tell people, I mean, you can look at back at history. I mean, you can look back, you know, in the 1920s. 1930s, you remember when I've heard stories about, you know, the white sheriff coming into the black, you know, uh, neighborhood, a black community looking for a black person, you know, they say, well, where's old John out there? You know, and old John gets into the car, doesn't fight the uh, sheriff, and then the next day they find old John half dead alongside of the road, being severely beaten. And also, too, um, they had a clip 
um, about a year ago, two years ago, um, near the area where I live, it was Champaign, Illinois. It was a black guy. You know, he was walking with the officer. He, um, they were talking. He wasn't fighting with the cop. He wasn't resisting. He, uh, wasn't doing anything. All of a sudden, the cop just maced him in the face and pushed him into the car. And as, as usual, when they did the investigation, you know, uh, for wrongdoing, the sheriff said, oh, he didn't do nothing wrong. State police, Illinois State Police said, oh, he didn't do nothing wrong. FBI said, oh, he didn't do nothing wrong. But the city disagreed and gave the guy uh, $200,000. And also, too, um, about that motorcycle gang, one thing I, I've noticed under white supremacy, had that would have been a, a black biker club, this would have been a whole lot handled a whole lot differently, I think. You know, like they did in the, out over in Ferguson when they brought out the tanks. Had these would have been black bikers, they'd probably been uh, a bloodbath. They'd have been shot out there because I didn't see any of those um, racist white cops run out there and beat up those bikers and abuse them like they did some of them black children out there in that area. You know, I when they showed it, they just showed the cops. They they didn't show any. Uh, conflict, you know, and, and, and that case. And also to also too about the medical school and I can understand why there's not too many black uh doctors or or um uh, dentists is because the system of white because they have to deal with white folks. They gotta go through if you have to go through their school they don't want black people to have real lucrative jobs. And, you know, prestigious jobs, white people will do anything they can to keep you from graduating. Even if they do graduate, they still got to face racism when they get to the industry, to the hospital, and, you know, the other things. That's all I had. I'll mute my line. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, go ahead. All right, greetings to you, Gus, and to all the callers and the listeners. Um, yeah, there's a few things I wanted to chime in on. I just wanted to also um, state in regards to the motorcycle gang, they all, I remember um, explicitly they actually threatened to shoot police during the investigation, and nothing happened to any of them. And I remember they, they had spoken about that on a number of different um, news outlets that I'd seen, that there were threats to uh, shoot police officers, and, again, nothing happened to those people in that, that motorcycle gang incident. Um, also, I wanted to discuss, too, the uh, article, I mean, the, uh, the segment that you played in regards to uh, white people who were pulled over by the police being found with more contraband uh, than the blacks that they pulled over. And it spoke volumes to me about uh, both groups understanding white supremacy. White people know that they are less likely to be pulled over by police, so they're more likely to carry a lot more drugs and contraband and guns and everything else because they have a much lower chance of being pulled over by the police or searched. And the fact that uh, they find much less contraband on stops for black people goes to show that we understand what it is to drive, drive, walk, or just be black in this society. And the fact that we can be stopped for any reason whatsoever at any given time and that our lives are not in our own hands. So um, ultimately to me, it just, it's a, it's a good thing that is that uh, at least those numbers are showing that there is a, a better understanding of the system uh, by black people but it also shows that white people understand what they can get away with as well. 
Um, also, uh, Gus, I sent you an article regarding Roman Polanski. Um, the, he's the, the filmmaker who made the demonic film uh, Rosemary's Baby, who was also a pedophile. He had drugged the 13-year-old girl and raped her and then uh, ran out of the United States to escape prosecution. And most recently, Sweden uh, stopped the bid to extradite him to the United States. The white supremacy wins again. And another pedophile gets to you know walk around free and probably rape a lot more of the females in Sweden. Um, but that's good for them. At least they're not here. he's not here doing it to black people. Hopefully he's not doing it to any black people in Sweden. And then also I sent you an article, I don't know if you saw it as well, uh, it was regarding two uh, Muslims who were truckers for a company. They were asked to deliver uh, alcoholic beverages, and they both refused, uh, stating uh, their religion forbids them to deal with anything as far as delivering alcoholic beverages to people that as a practicing Muslim, they refused to actually uh, deliver those goods, and they were actually terminated. The uh, case went to court, and they were then awarded uh, $240,000 for racial, dis- I mean, excuse me, religious discrimination um, for the fact that they did not um, actually choose to deliver alcoholic beverages, which I think was really good, even though the premise was religious. I mean, just the idea that they stood up for something like that at all was really cool. Um, and the fact that uh, they were able to at least win the case because the company was forced to concede that that, that was a discriminatory act that the company did uh, towards those people, um, they ended up winning the $240,000. So those are the things I wanted to chime in on as well. Thank you very much. Uh, and that's it. Appreciate that. I did get those reports. I just wanted to get in really quick before we hear from the other folks. Uh, that report um, about the quote-unquote policing in Greensboro, North Carolina. I posted the article that was in the New York Times uh, last week. I think it was in the paper last weekend. That, again, uh, and I'm going to have to send it to Dr. Rasayan. When we had the exchange, and I told him on the program this summer, when he said, you know, an officer stops you, oh, hey, you know, feel free, look through the car, I don't have anything. I said, that is horrendous advice. That is the type of thing that leads to you not going home. I have almost on a weekly basis, I see at least one piece of information where it's the same thing. We don't have a warrant. Hey, will you consent to a search? That is why I continue to insist. I said it on the program with Pam. That's one that needs to be in your code. It's not about being confrontational. You're not making the statement as though you got an army behind you because you don't. It is simply an understanding of the law. If you don't have a warrant, sir, ma'am, I do not consent to any searches of my person, my vehicle, my property without a warrant. I know you're just doing your job. And that's all you have to say. I've done that before. It has worked every time. And even within that article, if you read the whole thing at the Times, there were black people that they went ahead and did that, right? They, oh, can we search your car? You don't have anything? You don't mind if we search the car? And the black people said, no, not without a warrant. The officer did it anyway. They went to court. It got tossed because he said that he got a lawyer. There you go. It can work out in your favor. I would strongly encourage practice saying it. You can watch. They have uh, videos where you can learn about this. Steve Silverman, Flex Your Rights. They have uh, vignettes where you can practice saying it to get that down. But that is one easy with just from the clip right there. Again, uh, they will look just, hey, I'll be nice. They can be friendly. They can do the good cop, bad cop thing to get you to lower your guard. And then if they find anything, if they break anything, if they plant anything, whatever, all of that is cool in the game because, hey, you allowed it. You consented to have them search. Horrible move. That should never be done. Do not ever give consent for them to search your 
vehicle, obviously you're in that position, so you have to make what the best choice you think is for yourself, your family, anyone who's in the vehicle with you. But that would be my suggestion to not consent to those searches. Produce the warrant. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, uh, you should be with us. Uh, there's Hi, everyone. Are you know, no, go ahead. Um, it's common in Texas, and, and guess I, I really, really, really agree with you on that search thing without a warrant. Because I was watching all the YouTube today, and I was shocked. I mean, and I may be the slowest one, but you know, one of the police officers is saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, we always we we often make our own nine one one calls just so we can get into an apartment." We call and we say we heard somebody come quick. There's somebody yelling in there, and we just make our own 911 calls. And I'm like, I said, oh, my goodness, I never thought of that. But, of course, they would. Um, um, Representative Maxine Walker, she tickled me. She said, well, thank God. She said, uh, it, you know, it's a good thing it wasn't my child. I'm like, yeah, that's right. It's a good thing it wasn't my child. But um, I also had another lawyer in relation to the YouTube with the young lady who was uh, assaulted in class. Um, the, the attorney said that uh, the reason they have the resource offices in the schools now is, was that, was that Melissa Harris Perry? I'm not sure. It's because of place, you know, events like Columbine where people with guns, would show up at the school and assault the children. So the resource officers are there to protect the children from people who would show up there with guns. And he says anyone who is in the school, if there is an event going on with the children, then if you wouldn't call 911, you're not supposed to call that resource officer. He said that is not, it's not, it's not a behavior problem thing. It's a, you're, that is police protection for the children. So any event where you wouldn't call 911, you should not be calling the resource officer. And I thought that made a great deal of sense. Um, with regard to SMU, I can tell you from my experience with SM, uh, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, I just never had so much, well, I guess I have mentioned this before, the drugs the drugs. These white children at this Christian university take more drugs and they give more drugs to the black students who go there than anything I've ever seen. They give them buckets full of drugs and cars and money and this, you know, just to keep the black athletes there. I've just never seen, I've never seen anything like that. Let me see. And the last one was, oh, and the medical school thing. It, it's just like the rest of school. You know, once we have the integration, white people had to, you know, get a new stick going. So let's see. How do we get rid of these uh, these black people with, the, with them in the same class as these white children? Well, they found out slowly how to bring back, you know, segregation. It's taken them a few years. It's the same thing with, you know, having to allow some black people into medical school. They pretty much figured out they have all kinds of things. It's just like your caller earlier was saying, well, they go ahead and even if they let them in, they have to let them in so that they can get the state funding or the federal funding, but then they just make sure they don't graduate. Or, you know, if they do graduate, then they just make sure they go someplace horrible, like, you know, a hole somewhere, a place in the country. And they just, they make it as hard as possible. So it's not on the front end, where, but it's not just on the front end. They also tell them, say, oh, you'll never make it oh, you know, you're in a black school and we're not giving you those advanced uh, placement courses that you're going to need to get into a decent undergrad school so you can go to medical school. We segregate you into this place where you're not going to have any kind of, any, any chance of getting into a really good school. So 
it's just up and down the line. It took him 20, 30 years to get that going. I think that was, I think that was it. Yeah, thanks. Puff? Oh, um, man. Puff, are you here? Did, were you going to share Puff? I guess she's not here. Call her in Ohio. Where are you going to go? Oh, hi. Um, hello, Gus, and to um, all the, you know, callers and listeners. Um, the report on the Black Lives Matter, I don't know, for some reason this morning when I woke up about that and I was just thinking, of, thinking about it because I had turned my radio on and, you know, you hear a news thing and, you know, the talk with, uh, in a land like this yesterday, Hillary Clinton, and they interrupted her, you know, her speech or whatever she was doing down there. And all I, all I can remember thinking was saying is that Black Lives Matter is going to be used if the group is still around once, because, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of like where they're at now, but you tend to know after the beginning of the year, this thing will pick up seeing that, you know, next November, you know, is a presidential election. And I just think that it's going to be, it's going to be you, you know, you hear Chris Christie, you hear all that conversation. Oh, you know, they're just encouraging. I mean, you know, they're just trying to kill police and stuff. And there's clearly nothing there with that. You know what I'm saying? There's just nothing there with that, but we know how white people will lie and, and, and how they have that uncanny ability to believe and live out their own lives. And so I was just thinking this morning, I said, they're going to use that group right when, in the thick of this campaign, and actually it's going to fall, the saddest it is, it's going to fall on Hillary Clinton or either Bernie, I don't want to say the saddest it is, Bernie Madoff, because then it's going to be used, how are you all going to handle them? Oh, they're in Black Lives Matter support, you know, and, and I'm just saying that because uh, I just think that's what we're going to see. Last night, I, uh, you know, I guess, well, I mean, I heard it and I was listening to my Twitter account, and um, somebody made a statement, too, because, you know, I'm sitting up here saying to myself, you know, Black Lives I just can't believe that you all are carrying on like this, you know what I'm saying, the actual group. So I'm wondering if, they, like you said, now that there are agents moving through, you know, they're being paid by people to do what they do. And, you know, it's all up there. This is Black Lives Matter. This is Black Lives Matter. I just, I just cannot believe that that is, uh, that they're carrying on like that. I, that's just me, but I, I just can't um, believe that that's, that's the case. Um, God, it was something else. Uh, it was something else maybe to come later. But let me throw this question out. You can answer it, Gus, or anybody else. I, I'm just curious. It's just lately thinking. Oh, let me say this. I was looking on your page. I think you have a picture of uh, Hope Fall up there, the terrorist out there in Oklahoma. And I, I wrote a little note up and I said, this is the face of police compliance. You know, because, you know, we're told we need to comply. You know, I mean, I know really black people, when they come to police, we really are caught between the rock and the hard place. You know, like you said, uh, you know, there's some. Oh, sure, you 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 can search my car. There's there was a case in Detroit earlier this year of a black man. I think he was driving a Cadillac. He was coming home from somewhere like two o'clock in the morning. Police stops him. Uh, pretty roughed him up pretty pretty much too. And you know, he gets arrested for some craziness. And and then they you know they say yeah we found drugs in his car. And he was like. I had no drugs in my car. They put that in there, but this wasn't, you know, coming, them asking him, can they search? 
you know, because we do know police can facilitate things. Robert just said, you know, we call our own 911. Oh, we hear hollering, you know, screaming in here because we want to get into that apartment, you know. So, uh, you know, we're here because we heard screaming there. We got a call, you know. And, I mean, I, I don't, I, you know, we know we know they lie. I mean, there's been articles and stories recently about how police can lie, you know. And um, But this is the question I wanted to ask, and, and just a this terrorist in South Carolina that killed these people in that church. Do any of you all think that this young man is still sitting in prison awaiting his trial? Because his trial doesn't start until next June, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm just, I, I'm just asking, it, it could be me out of the with my safety. I just refuse to believe that he is sitting in jail waiting trial. I just refuse to believe that. I mean, this, this incident... This terroristic act took place, what was it, this is October, what was it, in September? Uh, and so I just refuse to believe that he is sitting um, in jail awaiting, awaiting trial. So I'm just asking where you all think. Anyway, I, I have something else, but I'll mute my line if it comes back. Uh, any folks who have not shared, if you uh, have comments that you want to get in, uh, feel free. Any folks who have not shared? Uh, yes, can I be heard? I uh, heard two people. We'll go with firefighter first. Uh, yes, uh, I believe uh, in the beginning of uh, uh, of the uh, the clips, uh, I believe you were having a conversation with Mr. Fuller. Is that correct? Uh, an audio clip, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and uh, I, I think uh, the discussion was about uh, the squabbling that uh, takes place amongst black people. Uh, I had been uh, doing some studying on some recent uh, speeches on that uh, that Malcolm speeches and interviews and other clips that Malcolm X uh, had that I previously had never saw somebody been putting putting them on the internet and. That what that uh, interesting uh, conversation that you were having, Mister Fuller, about uh, squabbling and how common, unfortunately, how common it is with uh, non-white black people who are victims of racism, white supremacy, on how it actually it reminded me of the murderers of Malcolm X, uh, on how what they use as a as a uh, distraction uh, was to black people squabbling to draw the attention of uh, of the uh, the audience. It was about 400 people. It, it wasn't a small crowd. It was, it was about 400 people and drew the attention of his bodyguards uh, to where it was, a, uh, uh, it was so successful that, it, of course, we all know by now that it, it, was, it was very uh, uh, clear uh, track to kill uh, uh, Minister Malcolm at that particular point in time. Uh, unfortunately, it's something that we uh, I have down here that we are, we uh, uh, are quite used to this. Unfortunately, used to this practice of this type of behavior. Uh, it can be fixed uh, with codification. Uh, number two. Uh, I have down here because uh, I heard one of the uh, clips was uh, <laughs> was on uh, some kids, uh, and, and I'm pretty sure it was 
white kids that were uh, had some sort of un, quote unquote unauthorized protest uh, on behalf of the officer. Uh, and I'm wondering, since I've heard all of this talk with the uh, with the with the non-white black victims, uh, that uh, about uh, her inability to respect authority. Uh, no one was able to really define on what they were talking about when they were were uh, criticizing this uh, uh, young lady on, on that. But nevertheless, was was this protest an unauthorized uh, uh, level of, of being disrespectful to the authorities, so-called authorities that was at the school when they uh, walked out of class or whatever they did on behalf of this uh, race soldier? Uh, just a thought. Uh, that I had at the time when I was hearing that clip. And uh, thank you for listening. May I be here? <laughs> Good evening to the host. Good evening to everybody listening. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, a couple of thoughts on the clips which you played. Uh, I was intrigued by the commentary by Bill Maher, who was considered a, a incredible progressive and liberal. Um, I had many, many doubts about his uh, genuine social justice bona fides long before now, but really over the last couple of years, if Bill, Bill Maher has just been completely revealed to be, uh, yeah, what he is, uh, a very good racist and an intellectual racist at that. A um, couple of quick notes on the murderer, or excuse me, not the murderer, but the um, terrorist, uh, Daniel Spolkov. There was two very interesting articles in the New York Times earlier this week, and they actually occurred... In the same uh, in the same section on the same day, the first one is former elite boarding school student sentenced to a year in jail for sexual assault. It actually is what the uh, article title suggests. And then the second one, which I found very interesting, was on the adjacent page: new look at sex offenders in post-prison lockups that never reach end. And this article was actually dedicated to fomenting sympathies with sex offenders who have been caught in a, quote, legal limbo after they were released from prison. The individual who they showcase um, underneath the, uh, the, the, the title was, of course, a white male. Uh, you played a wonderful clip on... Doctors in education and the lack thereof uh, of doctors, of course, in education. New York Times had a brilliant article on charter schools uh, titled Charter Schools Got to Go List Singled Out Difficult Pupils. This is talking about a charter school uh, system, which is in New York City. It is one of the largest charter school systems in New York City, and it serves a majority black and Hispanic population, in the article, in a section titled Frequent Suspensions, this is what they wrote. 
Success Academy is the city's largest charter school network. It has 34 schools and plans to grow to 70 in five or six years. The network serves mostly black and Hispanic students and is known for exacting behavior rules. Even the youngest pupils are expected to sit with their backs straight, their hands clasped, and their eyes on the teacher, a posture that the network believes helps children pay attention. It is frightening the amount of white codification that is now being instilled in our black children. They believe this is what brings attention. And this brings me to, finally, Mr. Obama spoke in front of the International Association of Chiefs of Police in Chicago. The New York Times carried a photo both of Mr. Obama and of the leadership of this international organization, which has many members from all across the United States. And the photo was very telling. It looked like a military photo. The individuals who run this organization were essentially commanders and generals. No joke. Um, that is all I have. Thank you, Gus, for the wonderful program. Peace everybody. For sure. I just wanted to get in real quick uh, when the retired... Hey, can I ask that? Oh, Hang on I'm one sorry. second. <laughs> the retired mm-hmm. firefighter in Florida, uh, when he mentioned the protest in South Carolina, racists are so good, of course, they did have some black people who were out showing their support for Officer Ben Fields. In fact, I saw two different reports. One was in the Chicago Tribune, uh, where they also were covering it. And their story, the, the big picture that they had on top of the article, it only had a black student saying, oh, yeah, Officer Fields was our guy. He's with us. He was great. I never had a problem with him. He was the coolest ever. Because this is racism, white supremacy. Very easy to find victims of racism. And we're talking about children who are victims of racism. Uh, uh, Thomas in New York, were you going to say something briefly before we see if anybody else who has not commented yet? Yeah, I was just going to add that, um, you know, that article that I just read. My kids go to the Success Academy, my twins. And, um, yeah, a lot of what you said is definitely true about that um, that charter school system. I posted that on my Facebook page earlier today. It is a very interesting read. Uh, any of the other folks, if we have not heard from you, uh, if you have something you want to share, you should get your hand up now. Please do not wait till the last minute because we are inching closer to workplace racism. Ooh. Uh, so all the people who dialed in with a hand up more recently, your line should be open. Do you all have commentary? May I be heard? Uh, let's see. We'll do Puff because I thought I heard her before. Oh, okay. Uh, greetings, everybody. This is Puff. Uh, just listening to the program. And uh, to answer that lady's question, uh, the lady that just spoke a few minutes ago, I do believe Dylan Roof is in jail. I don't know. I haven't read up, you know, since uh, he got taken out in the bulletproof vest because he needs, quote-unquote, protection. But I do believe he's in jail. I don't know. I could be wrong. But I just want to talk about, like, the educational system that I walk in every day. Um as far as, like, schools, I'm not going to say anything about the lady, the girl that uh, got dragged out of her seat by, by a sheriff. Um, or making comments about that. I mean, that 
just speaks for itself. And uh, but I would just like to talk about just the militarization of schools now. I mean, it's just it's like it's like a prison. It's like it's like blank walls, like the brick walls. They've got it painted gray, and then they've got tape in the hallway for the kids to walk on, like, and they lead to classrooms and the lunchroom. So you're supposed to follow it. You're not supposed to get off the tape that they have uh, in the hallways. I mean, it's just like a militarization type thing. And then the officers in the schools and all of that type of stuff. The teacher or an officer assistant doesn't come and get you when the kids get for a dismissal. It's those, it's those people the school resource officers, they come and get you for a dismissal. It's, it's the same thing. I mean, it's just the militarization of schools now. I just wanted to comment on that. And then, uh, let's see, I wanted to ask a question um, as far as, like, um, what he was just talking about as far as charter schools. Let me ask you this. Do you know if charter schools, like, how are they paying for charter schools? Are they, because they're trying to get some uh, legislation passed here in Mississippi with Initiative 42, and I just want to know, like, how are charter schools paid for? Because normally with the, with the school districts, 27%, well, our formula here in Mississippi is 27% of funding for education comes from Avalon tax which means that uh, through your car tax and through property taxes, those are, those are paid for. That's 27% of the education budget, and the rest of it is passed through the federal government, you know, as far as the school lunch program and all of that good stuff. But I just want to know if anybody knows, you know, especially the caller in New York, he said his twins go there. But do you know how that's funded? Do you know how the charter schools are funded? If y'all can hang on that one just to make sure that we get the other folks who dialed in who have not shared. Other people? Then, okay, I'm sorry. Oh, there's no apology. We'll make sure that we get time for people to respond on that, too. Anybody we have not heard from who wanted to make sure they got a comment in? May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, good evening, Beth, and to the uh, other callers. Um, I just wanted to comment on a few of the clips that you played. Um, the one clip I heard about the young man in Vancouver who was asked to prepay for his meal. Um, I thought that was ridiculous. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, no one should ever patronize that establishment. I hate that. We don't know the name of it. Uh, but that's something that should be just known. And, and you know, I, I hear a lot of times they say, well, what could be done? I mean, just don't patronize it and really shut it down. Um, the waitress even admitted that she was following orders from the owner. So um, that was ridiculous. So I'm, I'm glad you you played that clip and shed light on that situation. Also, the young lady who she had the situation with um, purchasing a coat. Um, I thought it was interesting that the interviewer asked the lady. Um, she had explained the story thoroughly based off of her experience what happened. Um, and the interviewer said, do you think it was an issue of training or racism? And I thought that question was interesting because it was clearly racism. Um, 
but to ask, well, do you think it was just the issue of training? And then she said, the lady who experienced the um, the racism, she said, well, no, it was an act of training. It was an issue of training. And so I thought that, you know, just the fact that you asked that question as an interviewer is just uh, contributing to confusion. Um, because based off the story, it just kind of went without saying, in my opinion. Um, the doctors in education, I thought that was... Uh, very informative. Uh, it reminded me of uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book, uh, The Warmth of Other Sons, when she highlighted Dr. Foster, and he was explaining just his experience in medical school. I also agreed with the fact that it's a lack of role models, but, of course, the system of um, white supremacy, um, well, you know, what determines our role models and basically makes it very difficult for black people to just uh, excel in that in that area, but um, it did remind me of of that book and just listening to uh, reading his uh, experience, Dr. Foster. Um, it also reminded me um, you played a clip during that segment of uh, I think it was Sanford or something, and when well, Fred Sanford he was just basically saying you know about the white doctors and. From my experience, black people do prefer white doctors, which would make it harder for black doctors to thrive. Um, my grandmother, she's in the hospital right now. Um, and I just, when I went to visit her yesterday, I observed how she just lit up when her, you know, her, her doctor is a white doctor. He comes in and they just hold on to every word that he says. And I'm just, uh, reminded of the book of uh, Henrietta Lacks and just, you know, all the things that I'm just, my eyes are just a little more open to. So I'm asking questions and I noticed how irritated the doctors were with my questions, just trying to get clarity on what they mean about, you know, just all the, the medical lingo that I don't understand, but I was just trying to get clarity, but they were just getting a little agitated, but I didn't care. But I just, I just noticed how my grandmother and my aunt, they were just hanging on to every word he said. Um, she's in the hospital because she had um, the med the medicine that they prescribed for her was too strong, and she's having complications from that. But this is the medicine that he prescribed. But again, they're still hanging on to every word that he says. So I was just glad that I was there to just ask questions and just really kind of you know get clarity on what's going on because um, they tend to trust him because he's white. Another thing. Um, that I noticed the Bill Maher interview um, when Maxine Waters was stressing that, um, you know, at the end of the day, the young lady was experiencing whatever difficulties and she made a choice not to hand over her phone and did not excuse his cho the, the officer's choice of um, you know, putting his hands on her and mishandling her, and how they just over-talked her. They tried to really go, you know, loud and applaud his position about the parenting. And it, it reminded me of how they highlighted the mother in Baltimore during the Freddie, Freddie Gray protest, and then when she was um, beating her son, and they just highlighted her. Um, it just kind of made it just made me flash back to that incident and just how they praised her and she was being interviewed because and and, and for him to bring that up, you know, I thought that was interesting. Um, and the last point I wanted to make, uh, I guess I saw on your Facebook page 
<laughs> you were uh, talking about the uh, the weather and how it's been raining <laughs> and how um you know, hopefully it kind of stifles some of the, the participation at Halloween. And I just happened to run across and, uh, something on my Facebook news feed that in Aurora, Illinois, they extended the trick-or-treating hours due to inclement weather till tomorrow from five to from 2 to 5. And I was just like, wow. So it's raining in Illinois, and they're like, well, we're going to, you know, extend the hours, and they're putting it on all their news media and just letting them know, hopefully we'll get better weather tomorrow. So that's, ugh, it was just disgusting. So I, that's all I wanted to add. That's clowning. Did we, uh, did we miss anybody, anybody who uh, has not shared? May I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, Mr. Tanner here. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, a couple of things I want to share is that, uh, for example, the interview with uh, Mr. Spike Lee, the gentleman that was interviewing him, I'm, I don't know his name, but um, when he was addressing the fact that his son got a chance to uh, watch the movie that uh, Spike Lee made, I, you know, that including other instances, I, I noticed that white people usually address racism as if uh, uh, victims are inanimate objects or as if racism is like a fairy tale, so to speak. Um, another thing I would like to address is that uh, there's a guy by the name of uh, Paul Craig Cobb, who is a Canadian white nationalist, nationalist, and he was supposed to receive an interview from uh, this company called Time X2. And there was a woman, a black woman, um, by the name of uh, Miss Jasmine Brown, and they agreed that they were going to have the interview, and uh, Mr. Paul Craig Cobb went on his rant, uh, racist rant, uh, upon her, and she didn't know how to handle it, and she was uh, very upset and irate and, and crying and all of that. So then they brought this other gentleman, a black gentleman, by the name of Byron Pitts, who was shown on the video uh, speaking to Mr. Paul Craig Cobb, and, uh, you know, he spoke to him, and this is a paraphrase, not verbatim. He said that, you know, we had an agreement and you were very nice to me in the, in the beginning. And now I see that you went on a racist rant uh, to my colleague. So basically, uh, to summarize that whole uh, situation, it was almost as if that the woman Jasmine Cobb was not, uh, not Jasmine Cobb, sorry, Jasmine Brown was not able to handle the situation. So they put Byron Pitts on to take the moral high road, which is, Usually the thing that we see uh, in the media with black people having to take the moral high road, uh, for example, with black people always forgiving when uh, acts of crime are committed against them. All right. Further on, uh, I've done some research. This is just random information. There is a guy by the name of Wallace Turnquist who purchased a black Nigerian man, a Nigerian man by the name of Ezekiel Akpu Ku. And uh, he purchased this Nigerian man as a playmate for his uh, 13-year-old son by the name of Skyler. So a white family purchased a black man from uh, Africa uh, as a toy. And uh, when I read the article, it showed that the, uh, the son would tell the uh, African gentleman to eat insects and the guy would eat it. And then the, the uh, Nigerian man said that he was happy to be the playmate and toy of the 13-year-old son, Skyler, and he has a five, I believe, a five-year contract 
and he gets to get one he gets one day off a month, and I think it's a thousand dollars a month he gets. All right, further on, there's also something on the internet uh, I read online uh, on, on a website, on a couple of websites actually, to see if, if this was a credible uh, if it was credible information. But there was supposed to be a Halloween revolt by a so-called group by the name of a group by the name of National Black Liberation Militia, and uh, the FBI contacted the police nationwide saying that there was going to be a revolt against cops. And on some websites it said that it was a hoax, and I believe that it's possibly a hoax just to justify the potential and possible killings or mistreatment of uh, non-whites or blacks, I should say. Um, on Halloween, if it has occurred already, who knows? That's another thing. Uh, almost done. Two more things. Next thing. Black Lives Matter uh, is funded by George Soros, in which I have researched. I'm not sure if it's been addressed on the uh, show already. But George Soros is like this billionaire. He's like one of the 30 richest people in the world. So he funds it. He's from uh, Hung- Hungary. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, that's just presenting that information to show that, you know, it, even though it's the name of it is Black Lives Matter, black people really don't control it. The hand that pays is the one that controls. So, And uh, another thing is that uh, this is random information, very random. I've done some research on uh, the company Adidas, and uh, I've seen that the company Adidas was uh, founded by a man uh, named... Uh, Addy Dazzler, who was part of the Nazi party, and Addy Dazzler's brother was named, is, was named uh, Rudolf Dazzler, and Rudolf Dazzler uh, went on ahead to uh, make the company Puma, so Adidas and Puma are, you know, have lineage in the Nazi party. Last thing, the interrogation of uh, Miss Hillary Clinton on the uh, Benghazi issue, um, I would advise others, if Mr. Gus does agree, um, you know, to if you can, if you can look back at it, but I, I definitely have watched it, to look at the way that Miss uh, Hillary Clinton composed herself when they were interrogating her, and I looked at that as an example of how to compose myself when uh, interacting with uh, white people and also the system of racism. And also there was a guy by the name, well, a gentleman named by, uh, by the name of Mr. Cummings, and I believe he's a, congress- he's a congressman in Maryland, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and if you look at, if you do watch that video with the interrogation of Miss Hillary Clinton, you will see that Mr. Cummins was raising his voice and having a, a, a an irate tone toward her. I, when you look at it, it's not convincing. It seemed as though he was doing that to uh, to play a role and to uh, show a level of seriousness. Um, because the other um, members that were interrogating uh, Ms. Hillary Clinton were doing the same thing. So I believe that if no, if no one else um, did that, he would have not done that as well. It's just a psychological thing that I was uh, analyzing. And I believe that's all that I would like to share for today. Thank you very much, everyone. Right on. Uh, we are transitioning to workplace racism. Uh, the charter school thing, if folks have a quick comment at the end, we could do that. But I know that issue is very complicated, uh, even trying to explain it uh, to people. I have been in the unfortunate position of having to do that before because uh, some places, and it switch, uh, changes depending on where you are uh, as well in terms of where they get the funding from and all that. They just had a huge court case out here in uh, Washington State about saying that they uh, do not want these charter schools to get uh, public funding. So, uh, we'll save. Oops. Unmuted. 
we can save uh, a moment towards uh, the close if folks have anything quick that they want to get in on that. But that is a very complicated topic and uh, just trying to conserve time uh, for workplace racism. If folks have comments that they would like to share, the number to dial is 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. I know we had a caller who said that they dialed in specifically for workplace racism. You should probably go first. Uh, if you are with us, if you have a hand up, uh, feel free to chime in. Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, how you doing, Gus, and all the callers? Uh, you know, I, I came to the conclusion a long time ago that you know, racism is just a part of life culture, and the experience at work has basically confirmed this for me. I just graduated from high school about uh, 13 months ago, and prior to graduating, I had to do what's known as an internship. So I interned at a place that deals with people who have traumatic brain injuries. These are people that have, like, who've been in car accidents. Some have been shot in the head. They're basically people who really can't take care of themselves. So you have to basically assist them. So when you have conversations with them, it's usually not really fruitful because they don't know what's really going on. But I had this, when I first interned there, I went to an orientation, and the lady was like, you know, you may hear some, you know, some negative things said to you. And she looked directly at me. I was the only black person in there. So I already knew what it was about. So I met this guy. He's in a wheelchair. I think he was in a very bad car accident. He was driving drunk, white guy. And he's in a wheelchair. He really can't use the bathroom for himself. He's really, like, out there. Like, the only thing he'll really talk about is things they say that come from his past. Like, he will call you names of people he knew prior to. So we had to change his pamper one day. And as he was changing, this is my first time doing this. As he was changing him, you know, he started screaming like he was in pain. And he started screaming out, nigger, nigger, nigger. And I was like, wow. So I asked the guy, I was like, is this often that he does this? And he said, yeah, you know, obviously this is something that, you know, he was used to saying in his past. And I was like, this is, man, this is a guy right here who has a brain injury, right? He came up his own behind. He can't really function, but he still knows how to practice racism white supremacy. I was like, it, 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 that right there just let me know these people would never change, man. And that was all I got to say. I see my life. Mm. Fascinating. <laughs> uh, folks have uh, other commentary they want to get in, workplace racism, feel free to share. May I be heard again? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so there were some interesting observations this week. Um, they were very excited at the office that it was Halloween. Um, I keep on hearing words like bewitching hour. You know, um, at a certain time of day, our computer system becomes slower. They they always say that. So that, you know, they like, I guess that's um, that satanic occultist type um, things that they like, words and such. Um, what I've been trying to focus on is is what they're saying matching um, their facial expression and affect um, because it seems like when they're lying, the facial expression is a little bit different than, the, you know, the tone of voice that they're, they're saying something in. 
so just really paying attention to that. Um, I read in a book, and this is a code that I recently adopted, and it is um, Don't Let White People Stand Behind You, Um, because the book that I read said when white people um, feel uncomfortable when they don't have the advantage. So if somebody's standing behind you or over you, they have the advantage. And this white woman, we have little cubicles at my office. And I'm very big on my personal space. I don't like anybody, you know, coming too close to me. Um, But this woman stands directly in my cubicle behind my chair to talk to this other white woman. And I think that she was practicing. I think that was a way of her practicing racism and trying to physically intimidate me. So what I did is I acted like I had to pull something out the file cabinet and I said, excuse me. You know, I, I said it like that, um, kind of authoritative. And she's, oh, 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 I'm sorry. But that's one thing that I don't like is them standing behind me or over me. And what I've also done is I've placed a mirror on my desk so I could see if they're standing behind me. <laughs> I think they got kind of hip to that, but they didn't like that. But, I'm, you know, I definitely have a mirror because they're sneaky like that. Um, another thing is I'm trying to cut down on the thank yous and pleases to them, especially the thank you, because I think that um, I've been trained to, you know, be so subservient to them and so um, uh, catering to them. And, you know, I think the thank yous and the pleases, especially the thank yous, puts me, um, again, kind of like in a disadvantage. And, you know, I don't want them to think that... um, you know that I'm soft. I, I mean, I'm polite, but you know, I'm, I just don't want to put myself in a, a place to be taken advantage of. So I'm really trying to cut down on the thank yous, and it, that's been working out pretty well. And um, because I don't socialize with them um, at all, I've learned to throw out a few phrases throughout the day so that they can't say that I'm antisocial. So I'll say, "Oh, thank God it's Friday." Or I'll say something related to the job that's a, um, a, a consistent saying. And, you know, I'll smile, but as far as take, carrying on a conversation, I don't do that. So that's kind of been working out pretty well, and that's all that I have to say. Awesome. I really, really dig the uh, mirror codification so that you can see them. And I don't know if anybody here can speak to that, but I, I have heard that before in terms of that's just another way that um, race soldiers, whites will colonize space uh, and either come in and stand in behind you or I think Lashes had talked about she was on the bus, she was reading and the white person was getting close so you could kind of read over her shoulder. Uh, I've I've heard even though that's not workplace but it's the same basic thing where they do this all the time and just making sure they're in a position of domination and intimidation. Uh, that is brilliant to have the mirror so you can see when they're doing it and then to find a reason to make them move so that they cannot continue to do that. That is Outstanding. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, I agree. Actually, I used to keep a mirror in my cubicle all the time um, because they were good for sneaking up on you, um, coming around the corner almost like surprise, or they'll just stand over your shoulder. So I just kept the mirror there, and once the mirror was there, that ceased. Like they, they literally ceased from the moment I put the, the mirror up in my cubicle. Um, where I work now, I can, the screen is so big and it's actually reflective. And I also have reflection in my glasses, so I use both of the means to look over my shoulder as well. Um, where I'm working right now, um, 
also, uh, one thing I wanted to bring up at my job, I haven't been there too long, but there was a, a black male who, and a white female, um, who actually the white female started at the same time as me. Um, they both got promoted, and the person that they were promoted under, underneath, was a female who I had problems with the very first week that I wrote, that I worked there, and I actually um, recorded the incident. I still have everything um, on my home computer, and I saved it to a, to a uh, USB disk. Um, and the opportunity seemed interesting, but just for, just for the fact that I would have had to work underneath her as a supervisor, I said, nope, I'm not going to do it. So I didn't even go for the position, but um, now that the black male has a position, he's a um, pretty sharp guy. We've had some discussions before, so I know that he's pretty much aware of racism and white supremacy, and in certain ways this manifested on the job. We've had discussions outside of the job about that before. So, um, And he's, uh, he also comes from a background of... Um, of uh, being exposed to African warrior scholars and, thing, and things of that nature. So we've had a couple of discussions. So I just figured I'll just watch how things unfold with him. And um, I'm sure if anything does happen between him and her, he'll probably end up discussing it with me at some point down the road. And um, another thing that was fascinating, I was actually on my way to work one morning, and um, this, they had uh, these three white females got on the job, two of the, I mean, on the train, Two of the three of them had on uh, make face paint, for, like I guess a Halloween party was going on at work, and um, they sat down not too far from me, and they were very loud and obnoxious on the train, but I was able to hear the entire discussion, and one of the females talked about this long-term relationship she has with her boyfriend, and how uh, her, she basically, her exact words was, she lives upstairs and her boyfriend lives downstairs. And the fact that um, he doesn't really like to deal with her at all, he blows her off most of the time. Most of the time she's by herself in the upper part of the house. Um, she discussed the, the, just the idiosyncratic arguments they would have and the kind of discussions they would have about things that just made no sense. And it was just, it was just complete subjugation and separation within this house. And it just made me think of the fact that they have no love or respect for each other at all but they're willing and able to completely put all of that animosity, even if it's in the household, aside to abuse and terrorize black people every day. And um, I think that we, because of how we're conditioned through media and um, things like that, we're conditioned to think that their households are perfect and everything is fine for them and that uh, we're the ones with the issues because we're the ones who are always shown and depicted in, in public forums um, as the people with the problem. But she just gave just full insight to the fact that they really don't like white females. They don't have any love or respect for white females. And, um, and it was just an interesting conversation to bear witness to by first thing in the morning. Thank you very much, and that's all I wanted to chime in with. Mm. Studying white people, always you can learn a lot, in my opinion. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes, hi. Um, now, this is my first time calling in and um, listening to the show. Um, so I do want to say thank you, guests, and to all the listeners. Um, I wanted to share my experience. I worked at a collection, or worked at a collection agency in Cleveland, Ohio, um, and I just wanted to share my experience from being interviewed to when I was recently fired. Um, now, when I first uh, wanted for a job, I was told um, about, you know, what the job entailed, um, the benefits, um, the kind of commissions that we would be making. And, of course, you know, I was told it would be to make a lot of money. So, of course, I said, yeah, I was going to take the job. Um, and then when I started working there initially, 
I was given two days of training. Now, I had not had any prior experience in collections, and I was given two days of training and then put on the uh, floor to work. And for a couple of weeks, I was not getting any feedback or help from um, the managers that were there for my department. Now, just to give a little scenario what the this floor looks like, it's mainly a lot of black people on the floor, um, and a lot of the managers, or most of the managers except for one, is white. Um, so I wasn't getting any help, and I decided to seek help elsewhere, and I went to the black manager because she was going to be giving me a lot more help than I was receiving from my own department, and that turned into a big issue. Um, so that has passed, and then um, we had some situation where we had compliance come in, and we had to get rid of our papers. We couldn't have cell phones in the building. Um, if you had a cell phone, it had to be left in your car. Um, so say, for example, there was an emergency, uh, you would have to tell your manager, and then your manager would be the one to call 911 if there was an instance like that. So I thought that was a little bit weird, but, you know, I stayed there. Anyway, um, and then recently we had a situation where uh, I was supposed to be getting my first commission check. Now, I'd noticed that there were a couple people that were always hitting their goals, and I thought that was a little strange because, you know, it just didn't make any sense to me. Um, and then I noticed that they were getting fed um, certain leads to be able to hit their goals. And the people that were getting said these leads were white, um, mainly white. I would say maybe one or two were black. Um, they've been there for a long time, but it was mainly a lot of whites that were getting the leads to get these commissions. Um, so it turns out that my first commission check I was supposed to get um, directly deposited into my account. I didn't get it that day. I went to work. I asked what happened. A um, couple hours later, they told me that there was a mistake and I had to get a check um, cut from the HR department. When I got that check, it was $90, rounded up. And I just said to myself, you know, I worked the entire month to get a commission check for $90. Meanwhile, there are other people that are being set um, leaves, and they're making a lot more money. So I had to came to um, this, when I got fired, they were told that we couldn't have snacks at our desk. Now, we have vending machines in the break room, um, and in the vending machines, there's, of course, healthy snacks and diet sodas. There's a scale, two scales in the kitchen and one scale in the bathroom, and we can't have snacks at our desk. Meanwhile, in other departments, which are not white, there are a lot of, I mean, I'm sorry, they are white, they go and get snacks and eat at their desk. So I have trail mix and some water at my desk, and um, I heard that two other employees were fired for having snacks at their desk, which didn't make any sense to me because I was told in the first training session that we could have snacks. We couldn't have a full meal at our desk, which makes sense. That's why there's a break room, but you can have snacks. And um, they came to my desk, and they basically, basically I was fired because I had a snack of trail mix and water, and I basically said, you know, that doesn't make any sense, um, because, of course, a couple of days before, 
um, the manager, she was getting married, and we all had a potluck, and everybody was eating ribs and mac and cheese and um, potato salad at their desk. But I was going to be fired because I had trail mix and water. Um, so I questioned that, and she, the hire manager, kind of came a little bit closer to my face more. I don't like that in personal preference, and told me, you know, basically that that's what it is, and I was fired that day. So I just want to share that experience to see if anybody has some input on that. Um, I know that um, white supremacy was definitely practiced from the first day I got there to when I was fired. Um, I mean, there was other people that had um, encountered. One young lady was new. Um, they threw her notebook in the shredder because we had to get rid of her papers, but she didn't do anything wrong. Um, so I just want to share that experience to see what um, anyone had to say on that. Because, I mean, now I'm placed in a situation where I don't have a job and I have things that I have to pay for. And, you know, I'm not too sure how to go about this, but I just wanted to share that. Wow. Uh, I guess, number one, first-time caller, even though it's unpleasant circumstances, but uh, always good to hear first-time callers. Uh, this is why I you know, think it's so important that we're regularly talking about workplace racism, even if it's not on this broadcast. Uh, I think Thomas in New York just shared this month about white people messing over his check and it not being delivered on time. And then you got to go talk to 5,000 white people. And finally, uh, they go ahead and do the correct thing. And then they cut you the check, which you should have gotten way, way beforehand. Uh, and then Joy, a call that we had as well, was in the same uh, type of business, I guess, where you're doing calls and you uh, get commission based on your performance. And she was seeing the same thing where these white people somehow their numbers were always getting juiced, whether they were getting great leads. Sometimes they were even taking work that these white people had not done and they were getting credit for it, even though other people actually did the work. Sometimes non-white people, they were taking work that she had done or other non-white people and crediting it to these white people. And that's how they were getting these great numbers. So they get all their raises and promotions and everything else. These are just standard tactics that they use in terms of practicing racism just to always keep us part of that racial dislocate racial dislocation to keep us on the move got to get another job and just the daily stress of you know my check was messed up and they don't want to they're acting like they don't want to correct it now i gotta go argue about this and over snap i mean constantly just the same tacky actics uh antics on a regular basis uh did other folks did you all have comments or or suggestions uh that you would offer Maybe they don't have suggestions. Uh, one thing uh, I can write. Well, I guess I would say up front that uh, if you, you're saying that they, they fired you on the spot over the uh, trail mix in water, even though uh, in their policy you can have snacks uh, at your desk. Was was it uh, was this like written policy or was this like a verbal thing? Did they have anything in like their policy and procedure, their manual about what food you can and cannot have? Um. In their manual, I know it does say that they, you can't have snacks, but I know they've been changing a lot of things um, recently. And the snack, whole snack at your desk was something new, which apparently they said that they had recently sent out an email. The time when they sent the email out, I was not there. I, I was on break. So when they had sent that, I'm sorry, I was on break. I was already fired when 
they said that that email was sent out. So it's not like this has been something that's, you know, was already in place. Um, from when I got there, this was something new. So, I mean, they, they've done this before where if someone stood up to them or, you know, questioned their, you know, what they were saying to do, they always took that as some kind of threat and either fired the person or suspended the person uh, for talking back. Um, so it, it definitely was something new. I didn't get that email until after I realized that I was fired up and they said they sent the email out, which didn't make any sense to me. But, you know, that's, I stood up, I said something, and now I'm fired. Wow. One uh, recommend now, at least in my view, it tends it can be more challenging if you already have been terminated. It can be more uh, difficult uh, in terms of attempting if you want to get that job back to see if you can, you know, go through some steps to maybe get reemployed there. Um, you might be able to talk to some folks and get some suggestions in terms of this. If this really was uh, their policy, their written policy was that you could have snacks, just not a meal, and that they did not alter that policy in writing and alert you until after you had been terminated for an offense that actually was not an offense, according to the policy, as it was written at the time that you were terminated. Uh, you might be able to do that and even presenting like in detail what happened to you. Uh, I know Mr. Fuller always tends to have some really good suggestions for workplace racism. And I know he's even helped some people uh, get out of being fired or, or get their job back, kind of deal with that. Um, I can give you his number if you want to give him a call as well and kind of explain what happened and see if he has some uh, suggestions uh, on things that you might want to do if you, you know, think you want to try to get your, get your uh, job back there. Um, I can give you a Oh, go ahead. Well, yes, I had a question on that because um, I was uh, told um, that um, when you are going to be having paper back in a meeting um, with, with someone from, you know, like a manager, you want to make sure that you can record the meeting or, you know, take notes or something like that to protect yourself. So what do you do in the case where you cannot have a phone, you cannot have a recorder, you can't have any kind of electrical device or paper? How do you protect yourself in that realm? They, is it like a rule that you can't have pe a piece of paper and a pencil uh, to take notes in a meeting? Like yeah. That? that was, you it, said yes. Well, that's the thing. You couldn't have any paper or pen because that was a part of compliance. So, like, no paper to your desk or anything like that. And no... Um, electronic devices or phones. Wow. So, you know, if you come in and you can't have that, and, you know, I'm going into a meeting with a manager and I need to protect myself, how do, how would I or any of the other workers there be able to protect themselves if you can't have that, you know? Did, did you uh, add or did anyone else, like, say, hey, we're having a meeting and I just want to make sure that I'm clear about the resolutions that we agree to uh, in the meeting uh, to have a pad and pen just to write that down or even just to have someone to take notes uh, about what was said and, and what we all agreed to? Do you think that would be constructive? And, you know, if it, did you either ask that or have other people ask that and they just said, no, our policy is, you know, we don't write anything down. You can't have pad and pen. Well, yeah, that was told in the training, and then it was reemphasized, you know, that we can't have paper and pen. Um, usually, if we have any meetings, um, the the managers are the ones that have the paper, mm -hmm. but not the, you know, not the dialers. Oh, okay. They don't. You know, so 
and, and as, as I said, you know, it's just really our department. Our department is the only one that I see that has all those restrictions. You know, the no phone, no paper, no snacks, no, you know, walking around and talking to other coworkers. Because if you do walk, like I've had an instance where one of the other coworkers came and said hello, and the manager came and asked if there was an issue. And I'm like, no, she just walked by to say hello. So, okay, you know, it's almost like run just kind of on a lockdown. And it's really just our department, and our department is mainly black. And the other departments are not. And that's where I noticed all these restrictions happening. And, you know, people come in, you know, kind of moody, and, you know, and I get it. Like, you're working almost like a jail. Like, you just go there to get your check and go home. And uh, so that's why I ask, you know, how do you protect yourself in that situation when they take all those, you know, things away from you to protect yourself? May I be here? Yes, sir. Uh, this is me from New York. Uh, again, uh, last week I mentioned that I was in, I was very much uh, interested in labor history. Uh, one, it's, I hate to say it, but it's very unlikely that with much effort you're going to be able to get your job back. Most states are right to work and will to work states meaning they can walk up to you and say, we don't like the way your hair set, and they can fire you. Um, secondly, I would encourage you to get a series of books. There's three of them, and it's called the, uh, I was just looking at it. I think it's called The Power of Nonviolence. And basically what it goes through is a number of nonviolent actions that um, groups used to in used to engage in to stop companies from doing what they were doing. It sounds like what your company, what the company you worked for did was they, they put in every possible provision to stop people from communicating negatively about the company because they knew there was negative things going on. So there was no way you could protect yourself. Um, if you can get your hands on that email that they sent after you were fired, that is probably one of the best ways to um, help your case because if in the emails they say it's, it's a new policy or they're, re they're reinforcing it, that's going to sway anybody that's going to look at you, uh, look at your case and say, okay, she has a case, she does not. Um, but honestly, it probably sounds like you wouldn't have fit in with the culture. So, you know, maybe effort should definitely be placed in finding other employment. Right. Right. Can I be yes, heard? Hello? Yes, sir, we can hear you. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yes, I thought about, because I, did you say, just to ask, did you say that um, the supervisors were allowed to take notes in the meetings, but, uh, but the employees were not? Yes. What I would have done in that situation is ask whoever the, uh, the person was that took the notes in the meeting, ask them for a copy of the notes that they made, and then go over those notes. And if there was anything in there that's either incorrect, where they either outright lied about something that was said in the meeting, or there was something that uh, you, you know is incorrect that is there, I would make corrections to it 
and then from there keep that for my records. So that way at least you have at least one side of the story, and then you can actually write what actually happened in your own words, either on a separate piece of paper or make a copy of it and make corrections on the copy so that you have what actually happened in your file for the record so you can use it in your own defense. Yeah, just to clarify, because I think um, you probably think that I said that there's a meeting about me being terminated. That's not the case. Um, when I was terminated, I was told to leave then. Like, there was no meeting, there was no what happened um, discussion at all. It was, you're fired, pass your things up, leave your badge, and leave. So as far okay, as the email, you were, uh-huh. I'm sorry for interjecting. I was just going to say um, a, a good thing to do is to look in their, their policy, the company policy, and see if it's a written fact of their policy that you cannot have a snack at your desk because I think that is something you can use in your best defense. Um, I think the written word is the only thing that white people will pay attention to in a case like that. So if, it, if there is something that's not written there that states that you can, or something that's written there that states that you are able to have a snack and, and a drink or water at your desk, then they're violating their own company policy, and that is something you can use against them. Um, if it's not written there and it's more of an unwritten verbal law, then that's a lot different. But I would say the written word is probably the most powerful thing you have on your side. Um, so if you don't have a copy of the, of the company policy and you know people that work there, ask them if they can provide a copy for you. And then from there you can actually read it and read through it with a fine tooth comb and just kind of, you know, see if that's actually demarcated there or how it's outlined in, in the policies and maybe you might be able to use that information in your own defense as well. Thank you. This seems uh, highly, I mean, we've been doing workplace racism now for, I think, three years or so that we've been doing this. And uh, I have never heard anyone in a workplace environment where they were forbidden to have pen and pad uh, to take notes. Uh, if there was a meeting, not, you know, there was no meeting when you were terminated, but just that's typical policy that you're not allowed to have that. And you can't have a snack at your day. I've never heard uh, anything that draconian in the workplace. I mean, as the previous caller said, that sounds like an environment where they know they're doing all sorts of incorrect things and want to make sure that you can't defend yourself. Uh, if if things are that challenging. I might even have to think in that sort of environment of having some sort of secret recording device uh, on my person just to record things. Cause I mean, that just sounds, Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I got you, Mr. Reed that uh, sort of, I mean, it's hindsight now, but in that sort of environment, I would seriously consider uh, having a hidden recording uh, device that way you can record and document exactly what's being said. You can transcribe it later and, and the whole nine, uh, just something that might be good for people moving forward. Uh, if you find yourself in that sort of, uh, environment, uh, Mr. Reed, did you have a, a question on this situation or was it pertaining to something else? Hey, um, thank you. And greetings to all the listeners. Um, it was on something else. Oh, okay. to my, uh, on all right. Well, all right. I'll, I'll make sure that um, is concluded. If anybody else has any suggestions for the female caller, I actually do. Um, I'm the one that does. I do the journal, and I don't ever take the journal into the office. So what I do is, at lunchtime, I go out to the car and I write down my observations or important information and I just leave that in the car. I think the caller can't have um, any devices because she's dealing with credit, so 
maybe they're, they're scared that they're going to write down credit, uh, Social Security numbers or, you know, personal information. So I get why they, they don't want them to use that. Also, I will add, too, that be wary or be informed, I guess, be informed about your states of laws concerning recordings. Good point, good point. Oh, that's oh, sorry. Oh. I'm sorry. Um, um, as far as the, the phones and the electronic devices, in our department, we don't see any personal information like that as far as Social Security numbers um, where we could take that down, you know, possibly. We don't get that kind of information in our department. So, because, I mean, I questioned, you know, even for writing down, like paper and pen and phones, you know, I could get that because I have worked in, you know, a company where we did get sensitive information and I could understand that. But in our department, we didn't get that kind of information at all. And even if we're, you can't have the phone in the building, you have to leave your phone outside of your, in the car. I thought that was really weird. You know, maybe it's just me, but, you know, what if something happens and what if somebody doesn't drive a car and they can't just go to work and be out without, you know, some way to contact someone in, the case, in case of an emergency? So I just thought that was a little bit weird, you know, that a company would have that kind of policy in place. I just wanted to say um, this is just what I've been doing is, not getting comfortable at these jobs and, you know, trying to make the long-term goal, getting away from it. Um, get You know, for me, I'm just trying to get what I can from the job so that I can eventually be independent or do something else um, because I don't know. I've gotten comfortable on jobs before and just got set up, you know, for the big um, letdown um, when I had to go. And also, um, I also keep listings of other jobs um, coming through my email in case I do have to leave. Um, I have something already lined up. I have an action plan because these jobs nowadays are like um, disposable jobs. <laughs> That's all I wanted to say. Uh, the resource, and again, I will uh, share what I wanted to call in and share. Um, just Google. Can we record state-by-state -state guide? And that should bring you to a reliable um, resource uh, maintained by journalists on um, secret recordings and whether or not you can do that in your state. They have a state-by-state -state guide, so I wanted to recommend that. And uh, what the last um, speaker just spoke of in terms of becoming independent, um, <clears throat> excuse me, becoming independent and that being a goal, once you reach that goal, um, I have been uh, independently employed uh, through the nonprofit um, Black Talk Media Project uh, that I founded in 2008, so since 2008, and I'm still encountering uh, racism. So uh, even when you become, quote, unquote, self-employed, uh, you still have to deal with racism. I'm just recalling all the different business owners I've interviewed over the years who are uh, talk about, you know, um, still having to engage with the racist system even though you're independent. Uh, so anytime you are independent, you still got to come in contact with white people. So, um, yeah. And that's a segue to what I was calling about because I am an independent media producer. This is my work. 
And I was just thinking about today, you know, I had reached out to several non-white people um, prominently displayed on um, uh, white people's media like CNN, MSNBC. Uh, either they were on as guest speakers or they were um, uh, regular uh, contributors, I think is what they call them in the industry. So they bring them on from time to time to give their opinion on a certain story. And so I have invited, um, you know, some recently, but over the years I'm finding that, um, that they don't get back to me or they don't get back to, you know, my volunteer assistant or who helps me uh, set up interviews. And, you know, my purpose is to gather uh, more information and gather intelligence on, you know, dealing with the system of racism and white supremacy. And, and so um, I feel like, you know, that that's racism, that's, that's white supremacy being practiced against me through non-white people because they don't want to come on an independent black media platform, perhaps they scouted ahead and, um, you know, somebody's opening up saying, you know, broadcasting from behind enemy lines and, and, you know, all the things we talk about, um, that then they don't come on because, you know, they are afraid that perhaps something will be said or things that have already been said on the network uh, would prohibit them um, from going back on white people's media. And uh, so I, I, you know, um, blaming white people for that and blaming uh, white supremacy for that. Um, what was really odd is like this one, um, the last person that I invited about a week ago, she um, looked me up on Facebook and sent me a friend request, which I accepted, but she didn't accept the invitation, you know, to come on the program to uh, talk about police uh, terrorism and whatnot. And I've just been pondering that. You know, and thinking about thinking back in the other times where you know not white people didn't get back to me to talk about racism and white supremacy, and I'm like, you know, I'm noticing a pattern here. You know, um, if if you are, as Mr. Fuller would say, showcased by white people on white people's platform, that you know, uh, in order to uh, continue to have access to that, then you know you. Um, are careful about the other non-white people that you associate with. And again, I'm blaming the system of racism and white supremacy uh, for that. And um, um, I don't know if I'm really looking for any feedback. I, I suppose the only person on this line that could answer that question would be another independent media producer like you, Gus. Have you, you know, observed that? And, you know, if you have any thoughts, then you can go ahead and mute me. I don't want you to get any feedback. Not just listen to his response. Thank you. Uh, right on. Uh, let's see. Am I, uh, I'm not even getting any feedback. I didn't even mute your line. Um, my, I guess that would be workplace racism. This is uh, a job. Uh, my response, I, that was something I noted, I think, even before we started doing the radio program, just when I was known as that Negro who talks about white supremacy, uh, that that was, I, I saw how that impacted other victims of white supremacy. And I think it's a long, uh, track record, uh, of that because, uh, racists, they definitely, uh, do the association thing. Sometimes even frequently when there is no association, uh, doesn't matter. That just becomes a pretext to go after and further, uh, continue abusing non-white people. But absolutely. I've seen that pattern specifically with doing the platform. Um, you know, I mentioned all the time we are <laughs> widely hated, 
uh, by, you know, large numbers of white people and non-white people. You can look online. People have, you know, sent me various posts that people have uh, written down through the years. But, you know, that is uh, that is to be expected and sometimes might even be required uh, under the system of racism, white supremacy to make sure that you have uh, nasty things to say about other victims of racism who are trying the best they can to have a correct counter-racist response uh, to try to end the system of uh, terrorism, uh, to try to put them down or discredit what they're doing. I think uh, that is standard operating procedure. So, yes, I have seen uh, the same pattern. And I think the same thing Mr. Reed ended with in saying that the folks that are most to blame for that racist man, racist woman, racist child every time uh, the female caller, I guess anybody else, if you, uh, since we're at the end of the broadcast, but anybody else, if you did need suggestions or if you thought it might be helpful to talk to Mr. Fuller about a workplace situation, cause he d- generally can be very helpful with that. I think even some listeners have done so, uh, some of it's in our archives where listeners were having workplace difficulties and we got, uh, Mr. Fuller on so she, he could hear, uh, what she was experiencing and he helped her, uh, to transition from where she lost the job and was able to get a new job cause they were even blocking her efforts to get a new job. And he was able to give her some suggestions that help deal with that uh you can just give him a call i think he's always down to help out uh if you call during normal waking hours he's on the east coast uh his number is 202-484-5461 i spoke with him today in fact uh 202-484-5461 you can give him a ring and uh just you know let him know i'm a victim of racism and wherever you are and whatever your workplace problem is you'll probably want to know you know a lot of details about it that's just the way he is and i i think that's helpful in trying to resolve those situations but he can be very very helpful uh and and normally he is very generous with his time in terms of helping out black people who are having problems on the job uh i know thomas in new york uh he wrote in uh when puff asked about the charter school situation he said uh, to tell Puff, the charter schools are public funded like public schools in New York. However, they don't receive the same amount per student as public school students. Charter schools receive less money per student. However, to make up the difference, they go through private sector and donations from wealthy whites. Uh, and he is in New York commenting on that. I said that kind of varies depending on where you are uh, geographically and Washington State just had a big to-do. You can read all about what they uh, have been arguing about around the funding for charter schools up here, and we should probably do some programming. Some of that's going to come up in the book study session with Katrina after the flood. Uh, With that, uh, we should be wrapping. We will be back. uh, I forgot today. You just had to check the Black Talk uh, radio network. It should be before we get to the book club uh, this coming Friday. It'll be before that. So just Check the Black Talk Radio Network page and or the Facebook groups, uh, facebook.com forward slash R-W-S-W-J. And you'll see the upcoming events uh, for the cows. Uh, Stay tuned. We should be uh, going consistently for the month of November. Uh, If you have any questions, problems, you can't find something in the archives, uh, feel free. Just drop me an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com if uh, you know whatever you need just drop it there I check regularly also we're on Twitter at until justice at until justice I hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening stay safe Uh, for folks that are out I would recommend this is not the best night to be out and about I just I suspect there are probably a higher number of intoxicated folks out on the road consequently a higher number of enforcement officers out on the road, race soldiers, I would say this would be a good one to uh, stay in, 
clocks go back tonight, you can get a nice, long, restful sleep and be prepared to deal with another week on the plantation and come up with some strategies to help us solve some of these problems. But that's just my recommendation. If you got to go out, be codified. Again, no alcohol if you're going to be behind the wheel, even if you're going to be a passenger or pedestrian. Uh, it is man. You are asking for all kinds of trouble. Race soldiers, they are looking for any reason to make problems for us. We got enough problems on our plate as is. I say this all the time. It would count double for today. You do not. You do not want to be in the presence of intoxicated white people. It is playing Russian roulette with your life. Uh, I would even recommend be very careful about the non-white people you're around. If they're intoxicated or under the influence, it's too much evidence that there are way too many easily avoidable problems in those types of environments, particularly this weekend and I guess even tomorrow since they're extending the Halloween hours since it rained and they felt folks were missing out on uh, all the shenanigans. Uh, with that, invest if you think the program is constructive, racism hyphen notes blogspot.com racism hyphen notes blogspot.com paypal button is in the top right corner if you're not on paypal feel free drop us an email and we will get you a physical mailing address big thanks to all the folks who have invested and kept us broadcasting for nearly seven years hope it was a constructive investment of your weekend we will be back soon thanks everyone for contributing and i hope Caller in Michigan, I hope your grandmother recuperates uh, immediately, uh, fast road, uh, and doing way, way better the next time that you uh, speak with her. And great job asking questions. That's Vernelia Randall. I'm sure she would smile. That's what her book is all about, Dying While Black, and what you can do when you have to deal with physicians and just asking questions. That can be a huge advantage as a black person in making sure you control some of the racism, white supremacy, uh, if you should have to go and deal with uh, any of these white doctors. That's it creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of racism we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Your problem? You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.